be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence, and we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the ninth overall episode of Twin Peaks, Episode 8, often known, depending where you look, as Season 2, Episode 1, Episode 9, or what the German regionalization team named, May the Giant Be With You. I'm your host, John. Episode 8 begins with recently shot Cooper receiving two visits while on the floor of his great northern room, from an elderly room service waiter hanging up the phone rather than getting medical attention, then from a ghostly clue-dropping giant. At One-Eyed Jacks, Audrey fends off her father Ben's advances while successfully hiding her identity, but then becomes a prisoner. Jerry gives Blackie a hit, and Cooper waxes philosophical before the lawmen get him to the hospital where Shelley, Nadine, Pete, Jacoby, and Ronette are being tended to. Leland reveals his hair's turned white, sings and dances all over, and makes Hayward's Supper Club really awkward. Maddie has a vision of blood on the carpet. Donna goes full sex bomb and takes Laura's Meals on Wheels route. Leo's shooting is investigated. Cooper and the lawmen recap what they know. James gets out of jail, Ed reminisces about his honeymoon, the Major shares a vision with Bobby, and after Cooper gets a second visit from the Giant, we zoom down the hallway of the hospital to witness Ronette actively fighting her memory of Bob killing Laura in the train car, which no amount of Gersten playing the piano over the credits can make you forget. So episode came back swinging really, really ambitiously. And um, it came back double-sized, and there are a lot of questions that you can kind of um, look into based on watching Twin Peaks all the way through Season 3 and, you know, reading all the books and everything. They have a lot in here. And um, most of them are related to one of my previously favorite questions, um, the signs of multiple frequencies. I'm going to have to subdivide that a lot. Uh, same thing with the presence of Laura Palmer. Uh, so the questions that I am going to look at in this episode are, how does the giant contribute to our understanding of Twin Peaks reality? How does the major's vision contribute to that understanding? What is the effect when there's music in the air? How does the town of Twin Peaks respond to the fire? And what is Laura Palmer's presence here? And why shouldn't you wear her stuff? So before we start digging into the scenes within this episode, we are going to start by looking at how this episode was made back in 1990. 
So season two began production in mid-July of 1990, after about a month off, after the the um, season one uh, finale ended, and they were renewed. So, you know, they thought about it a little bit, and um, they started planning. But it's hard to plan a full 22 episodes, especially when you were used to having a little bit of privacy on your operation. Now, everybody in the universe wants to know who killed Laura Palmer. And, um, yeah, there's network pressure. There's all this stuff going on. And um, season two began basically with a whirlwind of production. Now, I know that um, Lynch was off doing promotion for Wild at Heart, which was going to debut to most of the world in uh, the beginning of September. So he wasn't... um, he, he wasn't like physically around all the time, but this is when he directed episodes nine and 10, or I mean, eight and nine. Oh my gosh. Now I'm doing it. Um, <clears throat> episode eight that we're doing now, the double sized is a season two introduction. And then the next episode. So, you know, he was around there and he and Lynch, I mean, he, he and Frost also planned out about the first nine episodes of the season. Um, and you know that because, um, you know, when episode 16 was being, or when, uh, when Lynch told Ray wise about the, um, about how, um, how Leland was the killer. And this is how the storyline was going to end. Lynch was talking about story beats at the end of episode 16, which was, um, known as arbitrary law. Um, so, you know, he knew all about that episode that only Frost wrote and that a lot of people are, uh, wondering about Lynch's inclusion. So Lynch, Lynch was, uh, pretty cognizant about this whole arc. And, um, We'll we'll see this happen a lot in this Twin Peaks uh, season two, um, where um, where the writers basically only plan out about seven to nine episodes at a time. So it kind of divides the uh, the planning of the the season into three chunks. Um, <clears throat> now, the the first nine episodes deal with the Who Killed Laura storyline, but. Um, ABC, the the network at the time, they were putting a whole bunch of pressure on Lynch and Frost to to answer the question in the very first episode. And Frost is on record basically saying, you know, it's like we held them off as long as we possibly could. And um, it'll end up timing out so that um, November sweeps is when the announcement gets put in. Um, In in Reflections, uh, An Oral History of Twin Peaks by Brad Dukes, uh, Ken Shearer, the COO of uh, Lynch Frost Productions, he said, from a corporate perspective, ABC didn't own it and they had no stake in it. And they're talking about Twin Peaks. The show was a big family. Mark and David owned it, which is why I always felt ABC was kind of not committed to the show. It did nothing for their bottom line except draw ratings and advertisements. And I mean, as I've been saying through season one, I mean, the ratings were pretty middling at the time. You know, they weren't they weren't exactly terrible, but they were looking they were looking at those kind of bad numbers. And, um, you know, the advertisements were only going to be what they were going to be based on the ratings, not by public uh, public buzz. You know, it's like you got to you got to tune your eyeballs on the set for it to be able to survive. Um, You know, that said, uh, all summer long, excuse me, pretty much all the way through 
till the well i mean i don't know if it made it all the way to the november reveal but it definitely made it into uh september and probably october where um where you had like regular people just going through the Lynchfrost production dumpsters, you know, looking for discarded script pages and clues for, you know, who killed Laura. And, um, you know, that, that provided a lot of secrecy on set. You know, everybody had a numbered and lettered script with this particular code. That way, like if something, you know, if security, um, if there was a security breach in the, uh, in the storyline, then, you know, we would know who was kind of careless with their script, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, even outside of production, you got actors going, you know, to buy groceries at the regular, at, at doing their regular life stuff. And people are coming up and asking them, it's like, what do you know? Tell me, you've got to know everything. And of course they didn't because, you know, um, Lynch and Frost, they, they barely even told um, Ray Wise and Richard Bamer and uh, Cheryl Lee like right before the murder reveal scene. So, you know, everybody was in the dark for a very long time, except for apparently Jennifer Lynch, Mark Frost and David Lynch. But yeah, so season two production was kind of wild. And, um, you know, Frost in conversations with Mark Frost by David Bushman, he said something along the lines, I'm paraphrasing. Um, he would say between the pressure for the reveal uh, less thinking time between episodes and the pressure of making a full 22 episodes all in a row. This was quite a different experience than making season one in that bubble where everybody was kind of just experimenting and doing their own thing for a simple seven episode arc. Now, this episode actually had a missed connection. It was very close to being directed by Steven Spielberg because as, um, as season one was ending, um, they um, Mark Frost and Harley Payton got an audience with Steven Spielberg because Payton's wife at the time, Trisha Brock, who will go on to write a few of these episodes coming up, um, she was great friends with Kate Capshaw, who was Steven Spielberg's wife. And, um, you know, Spielberg really was on board. He wanted to direct the first episode in season two. You know, he, uh, he even said, you know, he wants to make it weird, do a great job with it. So, like, he was on board with trying to, you know, keep up with the house style and everything. Um, but um, it, it basically got shot down because Lynch wanted to direct it instead. And, um, you know, I mean, Harley Payton even said, you know, it's like, of course, I mean, it's, 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 his show, you know, <laughs> Lynch can, Lynch can decide when he wants to direct things. And, you know, there's no hard feelings about Spielberg, but, um, you know, why Spielberg didn't direct a later episode, like, you know, Lynch said, you know, he's like, eh, maybe he could direct a later one. <laughs> so blase. Uh, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> why it didn't happen was because finally when Spielberg would have been able to direct another episode, he had to go straight into production for Schindler's list and Jurassic park, which he shot back to back. So he just didn't have the scheduling for it anymore. But you know, that's a, that's a world where we could have had a Spielberg directed episode of twin peaks. So why was Lynch so, um, so interested in taking on, uh, directing the first episode well he he's he's feeling kind of disconnected from the show honestly you know like he he was off actually filming wild on heart pretty much right up until the end um you know all the actors all the writers all the production you know it's like everybody kind of 
and, you know, the, the, the train was already on the tracks and rolling really hard by the time he came back to direct episode two. And, um, you know, it's like he, I, I forget exactly where, but like, I, I read somewhere where Lynch kind of felt like the show wasn't his anymore. And, um, you know, he, he was trying to reclaim it and put it back where he thought it should be. And, um, you know, like even, even with that, like, you know, I mean, I think that could have been recoverable for Lynch's personality, except that there's also this ABC pressure to reveal the killer, reveal the killer, reveal the killer. You know, it's, it's easy. They, Based on all of the things that you hear about Lynch, you know, wanting to kind of, you know, have his um, have his vision, his way all the time. You know, I, I can kind of see why back then, you know, during this crazy, like high pressure situation, why he might be soured to television. But that said, he really worked hard on these first couple episodes. You know, it's like he wanted to do a great job and he wanted it to be his kind of show again. So like. You know, you get in the middle in the middle of designing season two, probably that July. Um, Lynch gave Frost a call and basically said, "There's a giant in Cooper's room," and you know, <laughs> like that. That was that was basically as much as he said about the giant. And um, you know, Frost said, "Okay," and then he started running with it. And um, you know, between the two of them together, they they came up with this idea. Well, I mean, the, the elderly room service waiter is apparently a running joke that. Um, Frost probably started based on the fact that he included something like that in a Hill Street Blues episode uh, back in, you know, his Hill Street Blues days. Um, but um, there's also the way that they put in the giant. And um, I I think, honestly, um, Frost installs a mythology, but it all comes from, like, this intuitive stuff that Lynch absolutely understands, too. So. Um, Basically, when it comes to the giant and the lore and all the live spaciness that um, is brewing right now, um, Frost said in Reflections, I wanted to inject a level and layer of metaphysical material, and David was all for it. That planted the show's roots a little deeper in the ground, and that was part of what we were presenting. Life is not just a series of events that happen to you. It's also, on another level, a mythological experience, during which you are consistently receiving messages from or making contact with your subconscious. No one really knows for sure, do they? That territory has never been charted, and I think it gives a deeper sense of mystery beyond the obvious. So, yeah, they... um. <clears throat> they they certainly did that. And, you know, whether they're subconscious, whether these characters are avatars of things or, um, um, yeah, like whether, whether they, um, whether they're kind of like how Greek gods used to embody very specific things, you know, it's like whatever, whatever kind of formula you need to use for these lodge characters, it works out pretty well both from how Frost looks at it and from how Lynch looks at it. And um, it really did create a deeper sense of the mystery beyond the obvious. And uh, it's it's been pretty great to, to read about how it's kind of happening, too. Now, as far as how that pace was introduced into the show, um, 
you know, it's like you've got ABC. They want things more conventional. You've got viewers who are like, oh, my God, solve it. What's going to happen? You know, it's like this energy is so high on both sides. And um, then you get this opening scene with the waiter going slower as possible. And, um, you know, then the giant, he speaks as slowly as possible. And, um, you know, it's, it's I, I basically see this as Lynch saying, slow down, you know, like he doesn't, you know, what, what's the quote? Who gives a fucking shit how long a scene is? Is, is that what he <laughs> said on camera once? Um, you know, like he I, I think I think he's intentionally trying to slow things down <clears throat> to say it to the network. You know, it's like, slow it down. Uh, he's talking in the season one finale where he said, oh, a lot of things happened in Twin Peaks that night. Um, you know, it's like if, if you look far enough up, you know, it's like, uh, uh, keep looking, Sonny is going to do it again with that glass box scene in season three. You know, that very first episode um, in, in the real world scenes. Well, I mean, you know, there, there's the going up the hill to Jacoby's place and dropping off the boxes and like not even knowing that there's shovels in them. And then, you know, we see the glass box scene and then we see Sam going up to it and they're replacing every single SD card. Um, you know, it's like... Lynch loves to slow things down and get our energy a little bit calmer. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, you've been, you've been waiting a while for Twin Peaks. Here's your new shows. And we are going to sit back and get things delivered when we get them. Um, it, it's, it's almost like, you know how he has those sound frequencies underneath scenes with the giant or, you know, the humming in the Great Northern or, you know, any any of those, um, the, the slowed down train car cues that um, that are all over this soundtrack that are really unnerving. I almost feel like those don't work the way Lynch needs them to unless everybody is slowed down, including the audience. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's like the... Um, it's like the dream can't breathe until it's at its prescribed frequency. Anyway, that's enough about the production. We've got um, we've got it debuting on ABC on September thirtieth, nineteen ninety. It's a Sunday night. Um, it debate it <laughs> it debuted as a Sunday night movie event, just like the pilot did back in back in April. And, um, you know, it's surrounded by all this attention. I mean, Wild at Heart was even coming out right then. You know, uh, the the movie plus uh, Nicolas Cage, it was on um, Entertainment Tonight as a story, um, like, within 10 days earlier than this premiere. Um, you know, the... the uh, the women of Twin Peaks were on the cover of Rolling Stone. Lynch was on the cover of Time. Uh, they they went to the Emmys, and sure, they lost a lot, but they were nominated for 14 categories, and then they won for Outstanding Editing, Single Camera Production, and Outstanding Costume Design. So, I mean, th this show, it, like, so many eyeballs paying attention to this. Um, you know, the night before, September 29th, Kyle MacLachlan hosted Saturday Night Live. And, um, <laughs> you know, th there's a scene in, in episode eight where it's like, you know, Sheriff, get your mind off Shelly. Uh, Mikey was asking from uh, from Cooper Duper podcast. And, you know, I mean, he, he was just off the cuff on this one. You know, he was like, uh, was the um, Shelly the waitress comment about um, 
you know, Kyle McLaughlin's monologue, you know, somebody asks him in Saturday Night Live, you know, it's like, well, who killed Laura Palmer? And then he says, Shelly the waitress. And then, you know, there's the skit about uh, David Lynch, you know, chewing him out. Going, rah, 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 rah. I don't know if it was like Robert Schmeigel uh, doing his thing <laughs> as Lynch over the phone, but it, it was a funny sketch. And um, um, Mikey was wondering if that was a response to this episode. And um, no, it wasn't because, uh, this happened, uh, the, the Saturday Night Live happened the night before this episode, so there wasn't even time to react to it from a production standpoint. Okay, two weeks before September 30th, we got the um, the diary uh, debuted. I mean, the, the, the diary was released. Um, and, you know, last episode of Blue Rose Task Force podcast, I go deep into the diary. Um on September 11th, a couple days before the diary released, we had the original soundtrack release. So yeah, everybody's buying that. Um, you know, how often does the TV soundtrack come out and uh, start selling like crazy and getting on the radio? Not very often. Um, <clears throat> a few days after this episode, the Diane audio tapes uh, release, and I'll be doing an episode on that one. And on TV itself, uh, a little while earlier, um, in in August and September, the um, the original uh, well, season one was re-aired on TV, and that's how I saw it and got hooked on the show. And then there's e- there's even a, a special uh, called Twin Peaks Cop Rock behind the scenes, and uh, <laughs> it's a little weird being packaged with the uh, with the musical uh, cop show. Um, called Cop Rock by Stephen Bochco, who was um, who is Mark Frost's mentor, and um, you know how he basically got into Hill Street Blues, etc. So, from a Frostian point of view, I could see why they why they package these shows together. But um, you know, like, why did ABC put these two shows together? Because I don't know. Um, they were they were trying to get some buzz going for a new show and for the show that hopefully gets even bigger than it already is. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, it's hosted by Alan Thicke, and, like, there's no there's no meat in this episode. Um, and, and it's not the, um, the promised introductory episode that Mark Frost had, been, um, had, had, had touted throughout the summer. That's the way uh, Twin Peaks Behind the Scenes by Mark Altman uh, phrased it. Um, <clears throat> that episode would have recapped the uh, the seven episodes of season one, and it would have aired the Saturday before the premiere, except uh, Peyton, also in Twin Peaks Behind the Scenes, he basically said it this way. ABC wanted to know if we could do it, and if we would do it. Production reasons made it impossible. Thank God we didn't. It wouldn't have been, I mean, it would have been a production nightmare, although we would have loved to have done it, because no one had ever done it before, and it would have been completely different. Among the different ideas we were talking about was a, an hour of the cable access station of Tw- in Twin Peaks. So it would have been an in-universe thing, just like the diary, just like the Diane tapes. Um, you know, just like the Twin Peaks Gazette that'll be coming out uh, soon for fans. Uh, <laughs> it would have been really, really cool to see that, and um, it would have been very surreal. Um, now all that said, um, all all the hype, all the conversation about it all throughout the summer, um, only 19.1 million viewers ended up actually watching this. And, you know, how much of that is because they had a lot of people, uh, 
having a Twin Peaks party. Um, so like one TV set actually had a whole bunch of eyeballs on it or not. I mean, that's, that wasn't quantified at the time, but, um, the fact that it's only slightly up from the season one finale is 18.7 and it's way down from the pilots, 34.6. Uh, you know, it, it, it didn't really look good for (laughs) ABC and, um, you know, like you, um, it, it kind of makes sense for why they ended up putting the rest of the series uh, season on Saturdays. Uh, and you know, at the beginning of the year, that's how they did it. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, you couldn't have made me believe the numbers back then because I was pumped. I mean, you know, I, I watched the Saturday Night Live first. You know, it's like the only other one before that. I, w- I was so young. The only other one I watched of Saturday Night Live was the one with Fred Savage uh, for, uh, for the wonder years. So yeah, like this, this was a huge event in our house. Um, you know, I was caught up with the episodes. I was watching with my mom, uh, watched this episode with my parents, both of them. And, um, you know, it's like the, the, the one, um, the one guy in the, uh, double R diner who says, hot damn, that pie is good. Um, you know, it's like, that was kind of the energy of, everybody out in the world and i think that was kind of lynch nodding at us <laughs> but um yeah it's like we we loved the 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 funniest she- scene in the whole show like i lost my mind I, I i couldn't stop laughing when ed was describing uh his honeymoon and how he shot nadine's eye out because of albert's reaction you know it's like it it took my guardrails absolutely down and you know it's like oh man this show is so great everything's wonderful it's here lots to enjoy and it was the exact perfect way to set up the supernatural weirdness at the very end when we have ronette's vision and um yeah that i can i can 100 tell you that um my extended period of bob nightmares started at the very end of 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 uh september 30th of uh of 1990 okay now that we've looked at the production history and how the people making it felt at the time we're going to look now at the log lady introduction which was filmed uh, <laughs> which was filmed by david lynch written by david lynch after Twin Peaks was basically done and this was his final statement. Hello again. Can you see through a wall? Can you see through human skin? X-rays see through solid or so-called solid objects. There are things in life that exist, yet our eyes cannot see them. Have you ever seen something startling that others cannot see? Why are some things kept from our vision? Is life a puzzle? I am filled with questions. Sometimes my questions are answered. In my heart, I can tell the answer is correct. I am my own judge. In a dream, are all the characters really you? Different aspects of you? Do answers come in dreams? One more thing. I grew up in the woods. I understand many things because of the woods. Trees standing together, growing alongside one another, providing so much. I chew pitch gum. On the outside, let's say, of the ponderosa pine, sometimes pitch oozes out. Runny pitch is no good to chew. Hard, brittle pitch is no good. 
But in between these exists a firm, slightly crusted pitch with such a flavor. This is the pitch I chew. So there's a lot here, not to mention she's kind of modeling her information after what the giant is going to say and how he says it. Even down to the one more thing, you know, the tangent after the uh, after the meat that we're supposed to really try to interpret. Um, so let's go, you know, can you see through, you know, walls or whatever, or so-called solid objects? I mean, that... I mean, from a from a literal standpoint, we're talking about the giant's translucency as he fades into the light uh, before talking to Cooper. Um, but it's also kind of like, you know, what goes on inside human motivations? You know, it's like, can you see it? Like, you know, are you it, like how Bobby is? You know, it's like he has these absolutely firm convictions, except he doesn't even know it because he can't see them. Um you know, there, there's the reality levels in Twin Peaks that do the same kind of thing, too. Um, they, um, you know, the, the people more attached to Lodge Space can see different things. I think that's where Cooper's intuition comes from. And, um, you know, just in general, it's like, um, you know, in your own life, you know, you, you, uh, you're stuck believing one very particular thing. But then it takes something to kind of make you recontextualize it and then maybe believe that, you know, there might be more to it than that, that you just can't actually recognize right now. And recognizing and seeing are things that are uh, fairly well related. And, um, you know, the 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 other part of, of Margaret's uh, speech here, you know, why are some things kept from our vision? I think it's because we can't actually understand that there's more to see. Um or, you know, we're just not recognizing it. You know, it's like when you go into a room and you think, you know, it's like, okay, I'm looking for a smiling bag. You're not going to recognize anything else around you while you're looking for just that one thing. And, you know, you might miss over or you might not want, you might not even think to comment on like the bad hospital food smells that everybody's talking about. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> there's also... In my heart, I can tell the answer is correct, which mirrors how um, how Briggs understands that his, you know, the, the vision that he had was an actual vision rather than a dream. Just, you know, assembling uh, the uh, the random thoughts of the day and putting them in an order. No, this is obviously a vision. And in Briggs's heart, he knew that that answer was true. Uh, <clears throat> now there's a big can of worms right here where Margaret actually says, in a dream, are all the characters really you? And, um, I mean, that's a, that's a case for how, you know, at a minimum season three works, you know, the way that, uh, the, the, um, the Tim Creter essay about how Cooper was like imagining this whole thing in his own head because, you know, he's, feeling guilty about killing, you know, being a killer. Um, there's, uh, you know, J.B. Uh, Minton's Skeleton Key to Twin Peaks is all about how season three is basically inside Cooper's head. And, um, you know, something like this right here makes me kind of feel like, you know, it's like, oh, are all these, uh, are all these people actually supposed to be, um, you know, reflections or aspects of Dale Cooper? I mean, technically... 
there's room for that. And there's a lot of room for that. But I mean, I, I'm going to be talking about that in relation to J.C. Hotchkiss's uh, reincarnation in and the return uh, later on. But, um, you know, I, I still at the heart also believe that the other characters in this story have autonomy as well. Um, you know, if nothing else, because all the uh, all the other writers are treating these people as real characters with real motivations. And, um, you know, they're, they, they're probably being affected by something that they just can't see that is kept from their vision that is basically lodge space interacting with them. But, um, yeah, I still believe that all the characters are their own kind of character. But after all that heady stuff that we're not going to get an answer to, um, Margaret talks about her relationship with the woods. And, um, you know, I, I've had a whole bunch of previous thoughts about how Margaret's more related to the woods than the town, so much so that, um, you know, n not even the llama know where her house is. <laughs> Nobody knows where she lives. You know, she just shows up, apparently. And uh, they're okay with that. Um but then after that, she describes the different kinds of pitch gum. And um, honestly, it reminds me of the different kind of corn. You know, there's the corn and then there's the black corn in um, in Hawk's Living Map in uh, part 11. That, um, you know, it's like there, there's different there's different levels of any particular thing. And it's the same thing here with the pitch gum that uh, Margaret chews because she won't chew it. If it's, you know, hard or brittle, you know, I mean, that's no good. She literally uses the words no good. Um, you know, and, and runny, runny pitch is no good to chew, too. But then, like, there's this part in the middle that's not too, you know, not too runny and not too hard that you can actually chew. It's that middle stuff. Um, and again, you know, it's, it's sort of related to the metaphor of lodge space that I'm seeing where, you know, there's, there's this good dream and then there's this nightmare space. And, um, it's like the, the love you get from the dream and the, uh, the fear you get from the nightmare. It's like, which one of those is going to influence your real life a little bit more? Uh, <clears throat> So in a way, I kind of feel like that um, the way Margaret is talking about food is sort of a code. And uh, we're going to get a little bit more about food, too, in this episode. And before we start breaking down the episode, we're going to hear uh, some words from our fellow podcast at the Rumination Radio Network. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, welcome back. We are now at the part where we're going to break down Episode 8 in its thematic chunks uh we have heard from david lynch's final words we've heard you know final words as of 1993 and uh, we have heard about the production history and now we're going to start breaking it down in a theory style way and the first major question that this episode has me ask is 
how does the giant contribute to our understanding of Twin Peaks reality? <clears throat> now, I know, I know Agent Cooper being shot was supposed to be a riff on who shot JR, the, um, the early 80s uh, cliffhanger at the end of one of Dallas's early seasons. Um, and, you know, I mean, ev everybody was still talking about who shot JR as one of those moments. And, um, you know, of course, Twin Peaks is going to take a shot at one of those moments. So, you know, I, I was never worried about Cooper making it, you know, just the how and the when, just like JR, because he didn't die in that shooting either. He, you know, he recovered right away. That's just, you know, the convention of the time. That's what's expected, and that's what's going to happen. Um, you know, in, in the case of Cooper's um, Cooper's being shot, I was on the journey. I wasn't a crime, a crime solver. Um, <clears throat> the other thing this episode makes me remember is I love the supernatural of Twin Peaks, and uh, I loved it so much I internalized it right away, and I could not remember how little of this there was in the previous season. I mean, sure, there's, um, I mean, the, this this podcast all by itself has has shown me how much more um, undercurrent of it there was, but it never really surfaced. You know, it's like there there was the, the one random dream sequence with Cooper, and then there was Log Lady's Cabin, which, um, you know, it, it, you you could kind of tell that it was supernatural, but not really how exactly. Um, so that's that's like two major scenes out of out of eight total episodes, and um, and you know it took until this opening scene before the supernatural really breaks things wide open. Um, and you know also in this episode, Laura is asserting a present through presence throughout, and. Um, you know, we, we have the giant helping Cooper, but um, it, it's interesting because even though even though Cooper's delving into the supernatural because of Laura and it's possible that she's caused all this, you know, like she might have even originated the um, the the talisman shape of all the Lodge Space characters. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that you could come up with that, but they don't they don't intersect at all i mean they really don't you know laura has her own path where she's sort of uh inhabiting people up to a point and um you know dale's on this quest that um you know he's basically on a hunt for bob i believe and uh, you know whether he knows that or not um and then and then laura is just kind of existing in the ether you know basically you know practically begging people to notice her and um yet they don't intersect at all here you know it's uh, possibly the way that bob is um connecting both uh laura and cooper at the end but you know cooper's not even seeing ronette's uh ronette's nightmare vision uh memory you know whatever you want to call that um you know, in, in this episode, uh, really in the whole series, Cooper never speaks to Maddie. Um, and he never really talks to the Palmers anymore either. You know, after the Bob sketch happened, it just becomes a manhunt. And there's no need to investigate the victim's immediate family ever again. Which, you know, wow. <laughs> you missed it, Cooper. Uh, anyway, we've got the giant arriving at the Great Northern. Um, 
So, you know, a great northern uh, Gerard or Mike, uh, Gerard's spirit, Mike, is going to call it, you know, a place where people reside, um, you know, or the, you know, many rooms made of wood. Um, it, it's an in-between space. Um, you know, people reside there when they're not in their homes. Um, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of liminal locations as a uh, Gisela Fleischer, uh, she wrote something for 25YL called A Journey to the Underworld of Twin Peaks. And um, she says it like this. The underworld of Twin Peaks is a metaphysical sphere that is accessible through many different paths and portals. Water is strongly connected to the spiritual forces of the underworld. Whitetail Falls, the waterfowl by the Great Northern, is particularly important. And um, that's absolutely true. I mean, we'll hear hums in the Great Northern um, connected to this waterfall force. And that's where Meriwether Lewis uh, walked in the lodge spaces through that waterfall um, back in Secret History of Twin Peaks. Uh, there are many, many, many things to say that this um, that, that the barrier is thin in the Great Northern and that it's sort of portal-like. Now, Cooper's room number 315 in particular, I mean, we've got... M over at Sparkwood and 21 talking about how this this number 315 is divisible by three in multiple ways. And uh, Lynch is highly into the numerology. Um, one of the ways it's divisible by three is just by dividing it in half. And then you've got, I mean, in, in, into three. Uh, 315 is 105 times three. And 105 is a six. So you've got a six, a six, and a six that can make up 315. And uh, um, I know I know, I mentioned that thing from Reflections, An Oral History of Twin Peaks by Brad Dukes, uh, where Phil Siegel basically talks about Lynch um, driving around an hour and a half because he saw a 666 on a license plate and he needed to zero out the karma or balance out the karma before he came to work. So uh, yeah, he's serious about this stuff. And I would not be shocked if 315 is supposed to be symbolizing um, Dale Cooper's state through this. So as far as the time of this opening scene, it's uh, 4.30 is about when he was shot, uh, when Cooper was shot. Um, you know, Andy kept asking, you know, Agent Cooper, Agent Cooper, you know, to how many times did Andy actually say that? Because if you look at when Andy, Hawk, and Harry actually, uh, you know, busted in the door with guns drawn and everything, it was the sun was up then. So, I mean, at a minimum, that's an hour later. It's probably even closer to like six or six thirty, depending on when the sun actually does rise or around, um, you know, March of of 1989. You know, part of me wonders if Andy kept talking into the phone, waiting for a sound before he could take action. Um and then, you know, like maybe Harry came in, you know, it's like, what's going on, Andy? And then he's like, oh, we got to get over there. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I I was, was Andy waiting for confirmation? Who could say? And um, strange thing about Andy, he's on repeat a lot here. You know, it's like he talks Agent Cooper over and over again. And then later on, it'll be... Um, you know, it, it'll be, uh, you know who this is? Do you know who this is? It's Agent Rosenflower. You know, it's like he, um, he seems to be stuck in his words fairly regularly. And that tends to mean an importance of a way. Um, <clears throat> you know, in this scene, Cooper asks for a doctor 
twice of the uh, of the elderly room service waiter and um then confirms a third time after the waiter hangs up a phone you know it's like did you did you call uh, did you call for medical attention and um you know it's like when something comes up three times it's most important and um you know later on in season 3 i kind of wonder if you're getting the um the love frequency, the fear frequency, and the physical frequency all at once. If you're if you're saying something three times, you're almost addressing those three uh, realities or the ways of thinking. <clears throat> Here, I don't know if it's more just you know Lynch likes threes, like you know he feels good about them, and like maybe he's doing it intuitively already. <clears throat> As for the waiter, we've got Hank Wharton, who was cast as this character. And, you know, he's an old cowboy actor, which would make uh, Lynch and Frost and Kyle MacLachlan and everybody very, very, very happy because Westerns used to be that day's Marvel movies, basically. You know, like all, all the superhero movies that are taken over now, it's like everything was, you know, Gunsmoke and Rawhide on, on the television. You know, it's like you just grew up with this stuff. And Westerns was in your blood and it made you feel like a kid again. And um, casting Hank Warden, um, you know, he was in things like The Searchers. And um, I guess in, in multiple things that he was in, you know, thank you kindly was one of his lines. So they wrote that in as a definite homage that, you know, this guy, this guy is like a, you know, I mean, he, he brings up memories of nostalgia and, um, you know, that, he, he brings up these positive feelings too, uh, you know, translates into positive energy to the elderly room service waiter as well. And, um, you know, if he's tied and associated with the giant, you know, that's generally positive energy connecting to the giant too. And, uh, I, I wonder if that's like sort of a code in a way, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, a, an intuitive code that they put in that we can read, but not necessarily that it was intended. Um, <clears throat> and you know also if the giant was tied to the waiter could that explain why there's a disconnection for the waiter to not notice that cooper needs medical attention because he's already like halfway in transition to this dreamier space or maybe cooper is you know it's like we get cooper looking for medical attention and the waiter's concerned about the phone not on its receiver you know there's it, it feels like the dis disconnection between sarah you know do you miss your mother and maddie later on where maddie doesn't answer that she just says i had a strange dream um you know there, there's these different frequencies of understanding where people can't directly respond to each other and i know i know um Oh, man, I just heard this on a podcast where misunderstanding is like the foundation of communication, according to David Lynch, or like that's like the the default setting <laughs> for communication. It's like nobody can understand what's going on inside you. Like you are the only person who truly understands everything about you. And, um, you know, I, I you, you could read it at one level, but then the way the way the large space characters kind of embody things like uh, like the Greek myths used to, you know, like each character in the, the, the pantheon kind of 
takes on an aspect of us, uh, you know, like how we think and feel. And um, I kind of wonder if Lodge Space is sort of like that. But but anyway, regardless of whether whether the waiter's a, a talisman or something or not, um, Cooper finally decides, you know what, I'm just going to get on his wavelength and you know, he's going to ask about gratuity. He's going to do this. Uh, you know, they, they begin speaking the same understood language. And then the waiter isn't so confused. It's like the, the phone. I hung it up. Yeah. Now he's like, oh, OK, you know, yeah, gratuities included. Um, and it makes me wonder, honestly, this gratuity thing, like, is it is it like in fairy lore? And it's like, don't eat or drink anything when you're in the realm of fairy or you'll be in their debt. You know, don't accept their hospitality, basically. <clears throat> um and, you know, the, the woods are kind of like that in this world. You know, it's like all the Shakespeare connections. Um, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of like fairy realm sort of vibes to how Lodge Space is seen in the early seasons. And here we have Cooper accepting the waiter's hospitality. And then um, and then with the. Um, you know, then, then we have repetitions, you know, the, the waiter walks out and he's like, I've heard about you. And then he comes back in for a thumbs up and then he leaves and then he comes back in and does another i've heard about you and a thumbs up and you know cooper responds first with a smile then with a thumbs up and then the third time the waiter comes in um cooper points with an index finger and uh, the waiter winks then you know it's like it is it's almost like you know he's turning off half of his vision for a half a second while he winks you know it's like but but all of this you know coming and going and coming and going it it reminds me a lot about the coffee cup in episode 29 where you know you get you get the 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 running coffee then you get the medium or then you get the coffee that can't move and then you get the coffee that's like really sludgy you know it's like is like there's this weird intuitive tuning that lynch does where like you kind of pick your frequency <laughs> and whichever the last one was is the one that you stick with um you know like th does this transfer cooper to the realm of the giant in a lot of ways you know it's like does this invoke the giant to arrive <clears throat> and you know here we have the giant um it, it begins with a ringing, you know, that, that, you know, like whatever frequency that is. Um, it definitely signifies another frequency than where Cooper is. Um, you know, Ben and Beverly will hear it. Um, the, you know, there, there's kind of a Josie related hum that's heard in, I think it's episode 27. Um, then, you know, there's. Um, after that, like we we. In in this whole time on top of the dresser, there's a lamp that's continuously lit, but um, everything else goes dark um, after the hum. And then, you know, the giant like fades in in a ghostly way with a spotlight. And um, yeah, so we're here. <laughs> the dialogue starts, I will tell you three things. So, you know, there's a preamble, you know, it's like, yeah, there's a. I'm going to tell you something, you are going to look at me, and um, we are going to establish a connection here. Um, then the giant says, if I tell them to you and they come true, then will you believe me? So, one, Cooper must not believe him now. Um, 
correlation is not causation comes up to me as well. Like where, like, if you see something, does that necessarily mean that it's true? I, I, I don't know, but, um, it, it, it's like twin peaks, you know, it's like, we need a whole bunch of conjecture to, so, you know, to finish putting together all the data that we get. Um, and what it comes down to is belief. You know, it's it belief is important, but it only comes with time and understanding and it's not automatic. And the giant expects this of Cooper. You know, it's like belief also kind of means that like once you're on the same wavelength as another, you're on a shared frequency. Um, then the giant says, think of me as a friend. You know, it's like, should Cooper believe this? Or is this subterfuge? You know, it's like, we, we don't know a thing about this giant. You know, it's like he, he's trying to put the groundwork down. But, yeah, I mean, technically, this could be a, um, you know, like a, a, a trickster figure sort of thing, too. You know, it's like, I'm going to tell you how to think of me <laughs> before you make up your mind about me. Um, but, you know, then there's part eight with the um, with the laurel orb coming out of his forehead and everything else. And, uh you know, that he finally does seem to be on the side of good. But, you know, up until, you know, part eight and part 14 and, you know, like when when he's doing his firemen related things, like we don't know technically if this guy really is on the good side or if he just is kind of manipulating things. Cooper chimes in, where do you come from? And, you know, the giant just does a gentle head shake, you know, left and right, you know, basically saying no. And then he he responds by saying, the question is, where have you gone? And, um, you know, I've been I've been kind of leading into this, you know, it's like, is Cooper now in a dream? Um, is he in the White Lodge? Is is he in another junction point frequency from the waterfall, sort of like how the Red Room is? You know, it's like he, he's kind of I. I kind of feel like, oh, yeah. And then, you know, Audrey physically goes into the walls and, um, you know, Josie literally, well, you know, spiritually anyway, goes into the door, uh, the drawer pole. So, you know, it's like Cooper's probably doing something kind of in between those two states because, you know, he can come back rather than being stuck in the wood. But I still think he's in this other phase of the Great Northern. Um and, I mean, you know, technically, he could be in a bardo, like J.C. Hotchkiss suggests. So, in the reincarnation in return, um, J.C. basically is is working with the with the idea that Cooper's trapped in a form of hell and, on his way to becoming a bodhisattva. Um, and I'm going to read from her article uh, for a little bit. The Tibetan Book of the Dead, also known as the Great Liberation, upon hearing in the intermediate state, is a guide for the dead during the state that intervenes death and the next rebirth. The first stage of Bardo comes at the very moment of death. Where do I think Cooper died? Cooper dies at the end of season one when Josie shoots him. He is visited by two beings, the giant and the waiter, which I, which I know have been considered one and the same, but I think the giant just communicates through the waiter, or the waiter is indeed a lodge being. They both are trying to get him to see things in a certain way spiritually, but one more literally than the other. The giant tells him many things, while the waiter listens to Cooper's call for help, but ignores his request. 
both of these beings uh, both of these beings are trying to teach him something about descending into the first stage but cooper being cooper does not see what he needs to and is put into the second stage secondary clear light this level constantly repeats the instructions needed to be able to go on to the next level the giant returning to cooper and telling him it's happening again would be one example in the return, only two Coopers are mentioned. The reason for the three Coopers is because there are three Coopers at this point. Good Cooper, the dead one, who is in the Red Room, pre-Mr. C. Cooper, who is also in the Red Room, and the Bodhisattva emanation of Cooper, still in the realm of Twin Peaks. So that's interesting because... Technically speaking, this reading actually still matches well with mine because the the um, having a Bodhisattva emanation of Cooper um, still in the realm of Twin Peaks kind of adds up to you know Cooper actually being able to be you know dead and or dying in um, in the season one finale when he got shot. I still don't completely go with that, but I mean, there, there's there's a whole highway for it. I mean, if if I had to pick anywhere where Cooper really does separate and you know becomes an emanation or whatever, I would say that it would be in episode twenty nine. And um, yeah, we'll we'll get there. But you know, there, there's a lot of things to chew on if you're if you're so inclined to enjoy this kind of stuff. So now we have the giant's clues coming up. The um, he says. The first thing I will tell you is, there's a man in a smiling bag. Cooper repeats, man in a smiling bag, in a very Cooper Dougie kind of way. Um, you know, reinforce it by saying it aloud in a lot of ways. Um, you know, so again, it's repeated, but it's through characters. Um, then the giant says, second thing is, the owls are not what they seem. Third thing is, without chemicals, he points. So. I know Mark Frost brought in the owls um, into the mythology. So like that, that line was actually written by Frost, which kind of tells me that this whole thing was, it, you know, like where he signed off on it rather than rather than Lynch ad-libbing this whole thing. Um, <clears throat> and then notice also in this in the actual scene, Cooper does not repeat these two things. Um, you know, he kind of is going after one thing at a time in an intuitive way. Um, Cooper says, what do these things mean? And, you know, he's in a break the code, solve the crime mode. You know, this is his only focus at this point. And, um, the giant says, this is all I am permitted to say. So the giant is actually working under a code of rules in a way, because he has to be permitted to say things about certain categories of thought. Um, and then, you know, it's the same phrasing that Margaret has later on in one of her log lady intros. Um, so there's an alignment between her and the giant, again, making it feel more like a positive, uh, positive leaning frequency that they're on or, you know, a positive reality that they come from. Uh, <clears throat> and we got the giant not allowed to explain the meaning of things, um, probably because that's a value judgment and, uh, Frequency selection seems to be on us. You know, it's like it takes Nadine a while to decide how to, you know, 
be on a positive frequency. It takes everybody time, but you have to do the work to dig yourself out of your shit to reach that decision. Um, you know, it's, it's not on the giant just to hand it to Cooper as the information is Cooper has to, you know, almost inhabit the answer. You know, he, he has to completely believe in it through his own work <clears throat> and, you know, belief and understanding only comes with work and time. Um, then the giant says, give me your ring. I will return it to you when you find things to be true. And I mean, this is terms of an agreement right here. Again, with that, that whole fairy stuff that I was talking about. I mean, Cooper is in process of making a deal here, whether he knows it or not. But there are ending terms as well. You know, it's not just it's not just a term of binding Cooper to the realm. He um he will have his uh collateral returned to him once he understands something. Um so there's a lot of things about this that we will be going into, but um, you know, Cooper's ring, you know, what 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 is it? It's it's made out of gold, first of all, which is an it's it's the goal of alchemy. You know, it's like make things into, um, you know, make make uh, baser metals into gold through through you know time and formulas and a process. Um, so, I mean, gold comes up in the gold box set of, you know, 2006, but before then, gold's kind of left out of it. But Lynch is definitely into the, the idea of gold and alchemy. Um, but what else is it about Cooper's ring? I mean, it was, it was basically given to him, at, like, after he had a dream in um, My Life, My Tapes, the, the autobiography book uh, that we will cover later. Um, after Cooper had a dream about his dead mother, um, then he realizes that he has a ring. So it it was given to him in that dream by his mother, essentially. So this is the thing that is being taken back into the dream space by the giant here. And then after he makes the deal with the giant, where he allows his ring to, you know, make him kind of beholden to the giant's situation, um, the giant says, "We want to help you." So first off, who's we? Um, Jacoby meets a whole bunch of giants in a uh, in a in a vision in Secret History of Twin Peaks. It's recounted in his book. So. You know, is it a fish story or not? You know, whatever the details are there. He met many reptilian cold giants or tall, tall creatures. Uh, you know, it's, I, I, I made the connection to giants. So did a whole bunch of other people. The conjecture is uh, fairly simple if you would like to choose to believe it. <clears throat> and um, the giant also here says we want to help. You know, it's like they can't help. Unless Cooper's understanding is on the same wavelength as what I'm understanding, you know, it's like when once they're finally speaking the same language with the same uh, information, then that will actually be helping Cooper. <clears throat> now Cooper says, "Who's we?" And the question is just ignored. So you know, <laughs> like he he does kind of want to understand who he's talking to. Um, <clears throat> But then the giant goes into one last thing. 
Leo locked inside hungry horse. There's a clue at Leo's house. So we got a proper name used right here. Um, you know, could could all of this be playing like this? Like how Freddie talked about, you know, it's like you're gonna you're gonna find green gloves in a store. Um, you're gonna look for the one package that is already opened and only has one, and you are going to try to buy that. And uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like that. Giants can be uber specific at at some some junctures, and this is one of those, probably because the giant is permitted to talk about other things outside the scope of the issue at hand. And that's why I think the giant can do actual interference here. You know, Leo is just a red herring in the murder of Laura Palmer. You know, it's like he did not actually do it. He was not there at the final moments. Um, so this is kind of the giant's way of saying, you know, it's like stop devoting time to Leo and put the energy into other things. Now, what is the clue at Leo's house? We're going to find out pretty soon that it's the Circle brand boots and the cocaine that um, and, and the boots that lead to Gerard. And, um, you know, is Gerard an ally? I mean, he's he's seen the face of God. So uh, and Cooper has seen him. So I wouldn't be surprised if he's also somewhat aligned to all this. And then the last thing the giant says to Cooper is you will require medical attention. So basically, you know, it's like we've spoken. I've said what I need to say. Your next thing, fix your body. You know, so like he's he's doing this agenda thing all in a row. And like, I I find it interesting that only after the ring contract is satisfied, we get the the giant being more worldly. You know, he talks about Leo. He talks about Cooper's actual physical injuries. Um, is is the giant getting more worldly, kind of like how the waiter was getting less worldly uh, toward the beginning of the giant scene? Um, you know, is, is this Cooper receding back into the world? You know, it's like going from where he's gone to where he's been and returning to his body. Okay, well, regardless of the meaning of everything, we um, the the giant fades away. We go to an Audrey scene, which we will talk about later. And um, then we come back and Cooper is still on the floor, but this time he's trying to speak to Diane. And, um, you know, he talks about, you know, like how um, we said it's a voice recognition or whatever he said. Uh, and um, then we see that the recorder is recording. So we can verify he is being listened to and that the sound of his voice is activating something physically. So, in general, Cooper talks about, you know, he's in a great deal of pain. There's a fair amount of blood. Um, specifically, he gets a little closer. You know, it felt like three bowling balls from nine feet. Um, and then he goes into how he's understanding being shot. You know, um, not as bad as he always thought it might be. And then we get this obvious Dune reference <laughs> uh, tied in with the what, what could likely be the show's thesis. I guess you can say that, or I guess you can say that about almost anything in life. It's not so bad as long as you can keep the fear from your mind. And um, that reminds me of the fear frequency that, um, you know, Bob and all that is related to. It's like if you can keep that stuff away from your mind, you can pretty much make it through things. Then we get the ringing sound return because Cooper remembers his missing ring. Um, 
you know, it's like while the fear is kept from his mind, he's on a frequency that's enough to remember and then physically see that his ring is gone. And then being on that wavelength for a little bit, now he's beginning to think of the things you regret or the things you might miss. And so he's like visualizing things. He's going back in time through his memories. Um, he makes goals to aim at with, with, uh, with his reality. You know, like once he, once he recovers, there's these things he wants to do and a world he wants to live in. And, um, you know, it makes me wonder, I mean, is it, is it him restructuring reality per his situation in the Bardos? You know, it's like, is he emanating himself and the world that he wants to live in? Um, or is, you know, he just doing what everybody does when, um, when we get to a point where we wonder, cause I mean, you know, we, we run through things too, you know, the regrets, the, uh, the, you know, the, the, <laughs> the things you might miss when you're gone, that kind of thing. And it's like, it, it's a human thing, but in this case, you know, it could also be Cooper magicianing. <clears throat> so after he gets done with that visualizing of, you know, the things that he would like to do, the world that he gets is the immediate rescue by Harry, Andy, and Hawk. And then there's this weird rubber bandy kind of effect, like where everything's like really stretched out lines. And then it like comes together, smushing into the normal view of Cooper. And that's just the way he's waking up in the hospital after after some time passage. But. Um, yeah, then, then we get information, you know, it's like he got shot because there was this itching that he had, you know, there there was a. Uh, his body was giving him this physical indication that, um, you know, there, there was this wood tick on him and he needs to get it off. So what ends up happening is the source of his discomfort is alleviated by a bullet. <laughs> but that bullet is actually something worse. And because Dale moved his protection while he was trying to solve his problem, he left himself open for, you know, damage from outside. <clears throat> Fairly thematic, not exactly super intentional, but, you know, it, it feels, it, it, it rhymes, basically. Um, so Cooper almost right away chooses to leave the hospital, despite, you know, how surly Doc Hayward will be throughout this whole episode about, you know, like, uh, you can't leave yet. Um, and, you know, Cooper, Cooper says, Doc, when will is invoked, the recuperative powers of the physical body are simply extraordinary. Just give me a couple hours to get dressed. So, you know, <laughs> like it's it's got that humor to it. And Cooper knows it's going to take time. But it's like the the physical uh, repair of Cooper at the hospital, you know, that that the hospital was only useful for that. Um, you know, it's like now it's the other levels of reality that Cooper is interested in to be concerned with. Um, is this imbalanced thought? Likely. But, um, you know, I mean, we get a Cooper who does what he wants when he wants to do it on his own time. Um, you know, two busted ribs, messy cartilage, or who knows what else. Uh, 
you know, that that's not his concern. He's, he's done with that stuff anymore. Um, you know, his, his actual preoccupation is, is that bag smiling? <laughs> you know, the, like his tangents have always been there too. You know, the, this is a lot like what kind of wonderful trees do you have around here? You know, it's like, he, he's got his own ideas of what to pay attention to. And, um, <clears throat> You know, Lucy's response to is that bag smiling is what's there to smile about? And um, it's interesting that Lucy's there in the first place because uh, the, the Back to the Double R podcast, they actually noticed that Lucy's bag, you know, the, the top flap and everything, it kind of makes a smile all its own. So like they were wondering, you know, it's like, is is Cooper noticing the wrong bag or the wrong intention or whatever? But um you know, it's like there's no man in in um, Lucy's bag. So I think um, I think Cooper did end up choosing the right bag here. <clears throat> Let me see where we're at. OK. So next time we see Cooper, it's a, a, it, it begins with a flashbulb. Um, you know, light, um, lighting up Leo's house. Um, at this place, Hawk is the one who discovers Fleshworld, um, the gas reeking duster that connects Leo to the to the mill fire. And, um, you know, later on, we'll get how Cooper calls Fleshworld a company that preys on human weakness, um, which is, I mean, essentially it's sexual shaming or sexuality shaming. Um, which I mean, you know, 1990. What are you gonna do? And uh, there, there were a lot of, <laughs> a lot of overtly, um, you know, r racist problems. We'll we'll notice with Tojimura. You know, it's like it it was a different world back then. So like, sexuality shaming seems right on par with everything else at the time. Um, but I do find it interesting that Laura used it in an used flesh world in an empowering way in the diary episode. And, you know, like she she used it to become an entrepreneur. And it was a good outlet for her to talk about those um, those fantasies that she wanted to get published. So, yeah, Cooper's um, got the view of the patriarchy and then uh, Laura had a different view of flesh world. So I, I just find it interesting that Cooper's narrow vision on that is. Uh, quite specific <clears throat> uh, th this scene is where andy's on repeat with the uh, harry do you know who it is and then you know the third time he calls out it's agent rosenflower and like he refuses to use the real name like he he refuses to remember what albert's real name is because he just can't respect him that much i think and you know then we get cooper i mean uh andy like hit in the face with a board that he like pops off into, you know, from his foot straight to his face. Um, and um, I note here that like every time Lynch directs Andy, Andy is it is most fool, like jester kind of, kind of envisioning. And, you know, I know it's partly because um, Harry goes likes to, or I mean, he knows how to make uh, Lynch laugh, but, I find it interesting that, you know, like we'll, we'll see in part 14 um, where, you know, he sees the fireman. So like this, you know, it's like Andy has the brain smarts, but it's so put 
in the back burner in Lynch episodes. And then he still ends up getting all these answers. Um, so what that tells me is like kindness and protectiveness is more at a premium to be on the good frequency than anything else. Um, <clears throat> over the course of this episode and right here, he discovers the circle baron boots. He, the, the cocaine, um, and he gets a thumbs up from Cooper while his head, you know, while his bells are hung by the board. Um, so like living in a, in a simple minded way, um, reacts more to images like a thumbs up than words like, you know, good job. Um, and it reminds me of how the um, the thumbs up was happening with the waiter. Uh, yeah, I'd say all the, all these things rhyme <laughs> fairly well. Uh, and you know, of course, Andy's got a head injury too. So you know, put that down on your checklist for who gets head injuries and what happens to them. Next time we see Cooper, it's back at the sheriff's station, and Albert's checking on Cooper's injuries. Um, and you know, Albert didn't do it out of the kindness of his heart. He did it because Gordon ordered him to. Um, and he describes the shooter as Josie's basic build, um, which Frost says he knew the whole time. He knew, uh, the conversations with Mark Frost by, um, by David Bushman, um, it's in there that he always knew that Josie was the shooter. And then, um, Albert here then calls out the state of Cooper's suspects, you know, like where, uh, you know, Jacques is dead, Leo's, uh, in a coma, like all, all the, you know, like where, you know, all your, uh, your case is kind of falling apart, basically, is the vibe of it. And um, Cooper asks, where does this attitude of general unpleasantness come from? And then Cooper suggests you make some kind of peace with rural life. So you kind of wonder, if he is a bodhisattva, does he pull a uh, Cooper Dougie here? And, like, you know, is this like a dreamer kind of move almost, where, like, he sends the change to Albert from here? It's technically technically possible. But anyway, in this scene with Albert and, and Cooper, Andy walks in with yet more knowledge. You know, this is Andy breaking a code again from a supernatural clue, which is kind of his forte. Um, Hungry Horse Montana, that's where Leo was. And that gives him an alibi because February 9, 1988, he was in there instead of killing Teresa Banks. So again, an, a physical a physical reality way of disconnecting Leo from the Laura case. <clears throat> now, an interesting thing about February 9, 1988, if you add the 2 plus 9 plus 1 plus 9 plus 8 plus 8, um, you know, you break it down that way and do a numerology thing with it, it comes to 37, and 3 plus 7 is a 10. Which you know we hear uh, you know out loud in in the return how it's the number of completion so it's the end of Teresa's cycle and the beginning of another which is Laura's cycle I'm assuming now next time we see Cooper um, he interacts with James <clears throat> after James gives Harry the information about you know like. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wish James would have told this to Cooper or waited a little bit longer for that. You know, it's like that that whole thing about Laura and you know, she says all this crazy stuff. And then, you know, like, uh, you know, like, would you like to play with Bob is kind of how he ends. So, like, he's actually tell he, he's giving Harry a clue right there. But then Cooper swoops in and says, James, 
I'm looking for the half heart necklace. Uh, give it to me. And, uh, and then he's like, how did you know? Um, and you know, it's like, sometimes you just get lucky. Um, so in that case, Cooper's following the energy. He's tapped into the same intuition, uh, that he, that he's using for his own healing. And he's getting these connections, um, whether he intended to or not, you know, he's getting more proof. And, uh, after he gets this heart necklace from James, he basically says, Jacoby, I didn't figure he had anything to do with this at all. So rather than being able to see Laura's positive leaning integration that um, she was getting with Jacoby, um, Cooper's only focused on the part that she's a dead girl and, you know, that she was killed by somebody. So, yeah, like he's focusing on one of two Lauras. And we're going to get a little bit more of that in the next scene with um, when when um, Harry and Cooper question Jacoby at the hospital. You've been listening to another fine, fine podcast on the Rumination Radio Network. This is Game Agent E.T. from Oh God, It Hurts! And we hope you keep on listening to our fine, fine podcasts here on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Another thing that seems a bit um, out of character for Cooper um, is in the next scene that he's in where he he and Harry are questioning Jacoby. <clears throat> and honestly, it's kind of rich coming out of Cooper's mouth. He says, I don't want any baloney magic tricks or psychological mumbo jumbo. I want you to tell me, uh, tell us how you came into possession of this. And he holds up the uh, half heart necklace. Or I'm going to place you under arrest for obstruction of justice. You know, like we haven't seen Cooper <laughs> this, um, you know, um, what do you call it? Worldly or whatever sounding since he uh, since he was questioning Bobby and the pilot. <clears throat> and yet, even though he doesn't want any, uh, you know, psychological mumbo jumbo or magic tricks, he holds the necklace right above Jacoby's throat for the whole line of uh, questioning about Laura. You know, I mean, is it, is it, uh, is it almost hypnotizing Jacoby or channeling something through him? Like the truth, does it invoke the truth? Is it an incantation or a ritual? Uh, Or is it just a feeling that, you know, it brings efficient truth or, you know, um, you know, the, the necklace is there because it came from Laura, maybe it'll allow him to speak her truth. You know, either way, sounds like uh, a decent amount of mumbo jumbo. So I guess the mumbo jumbo is only one sided. Anyway, what we get from Jacoby is the night after Laura died, he followed and loses Leo's red Corvette. And then he follows James's motorcycle, which he hears. And then, um, you know, we see superimposed over the top of this, the James and Donna scene, um, you know, like a recalled memory. Um, And I know it's just us needing a recap, but the way it was done is interesting. Um, And then Jacoby gets a little metaphorical and starts speaking of the divided heart necklace and uh, applies it to Laura living a double life that she was two people. And um, at the end, maybe she was at peace with herself. And then he says, no, 
she reached a decision to end her life and maybe she allowed herself to be killed. And this is where we see the superimposed image of Laura on the beach or on the, on the shoreline in the plastic. Um, you know, Jacoby's interpretation isn't exactly terrible, but it misses a whole bunch of nuance. And, um, yeah, you know, D Dale says, you know, she didn't, uh, she didn't commit suicide. Um, she was murdered. And then that's when Jacoby says maybe she allowed herself to be killed, which I mean, in a certain way, you could almost say that that's what we see in, um, in the, um, the, the nightmare that Ronette has at the end of this or the, uh, the memory that wakes up in her. Uh, we'll be talking about that later too. Um, <clears throat> So anyway, after the the Jacoby or after the Laura line of questioning, uh, Cooper puts away the necklace, so you know he doesn't have to speak in like that that coded um, that that coded way. And uh, then it's on a Jacques, and Cooper, you know, um, Jacoby, sent, you know, says that there was a smell in the room when Jacques was being killed. And then, you know, Cooper suggests voiding bowels, which is a thing that, you know, you know, he, um, Harry, I really have to urinate. And then, uh, you know, Bobby Briggs, he says something about that in part four, about how he has to really pee because his like, what, teeth are swimming? Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very long end thing to think about. <clears throat> Excuse me, is bodily function. It's uh, also sort of a funny way to to put it, but um, then Jacoby puts out the the language that I kind of stick with, the scorched engine oil, and um, you know that reminds me of Maddie in uh, in episode fourteen. Is something burning? And um, you know, it, it just basically implies the Bob was present, or at least Lodge Space was present, but probably um, yeah. And in you know the the jar in. Um, in episode 29 that Margaret brings that, uh, that Ronette sniffs and, uh, gets really scared of, you know, it's, that's, that to me also seems to be like scorched engine oil sort of vibe. So I think that, you know, even if Bob wasn't present, uh, present, there was some kind of lodge presence there when Leland was killing Jacques. So probably Bob. <clears throat> So after Coop and Harry talk with Big Ed, and after we see the Bobby and the Major scene, which we'll talk about next, um, Cooper says, Harry, we're going to lay the whole thing out. Um, you know, he doesn't need the uh, the rocks and bottles stuff. You know, he says chalk, blackboard um, is all that's necessary, and that the jelly donuts go without saying. <laughs> um <clears throat> So when they do talk about everything that's happening, they actually um, superimpose a lot of it over the top of a table filled with donuts and then coffee and then Laura's evidence. So is it said because there's all this fuel there and all this information, like, you know, then they can kind of tell the story? Like, is it a way for David Lynch just to do something interesting? Or, like, does all of this invoke this kind of memory where they're remembering what's happening and uh, it's becoming more and more real to them? Oh, yeah, and then the, the Laura evidence is actually on the side of Andy's, or Andy's side of the table. He's over by where the evidence is. So, again, he's kind of, like, near the truth with all the, uh, 
with all the stylized stuff that could possibly have supernatural leanings. So what we get is Laura went with James, ran into the woods in Sparkwood in 21, passed Margaret's cabin, and, er, I, yeah, Laura went with James, ran into the woods at Sparkwood in 21, passed Margaret's cabin, partied with Jacques, Leo, and Renette. And um, this is where we see a red traffic light superimposed. Then Jacques gets knocked out, Leo leaves alone, and it's because the third man is there. And, you know, the third man is a reference to old-school film noir. Um, I haven't actually seen it, but, you know, the, that kind of stuff was huge in the writer's room with, um, with Frost and Engels and Peyton, for sure, and probably a little bit Lynch, too, although he only had a few that, like, were his big touchstones. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but anyway, we get the third man taking the girls to the train car, and then he made a mound. And right around this information is when we see it superimposed over the coffee pots. And, um, or I mean, the, the, the coffee pots are superimposed over or under the image of Laura's fingers. Um, <clears throat> You know, they talk about Fire Walk With Me note that was there, was written in The Killer's Blood, so that means Leland wrote it. Um, all this talking about the case, um, it basically overflows Andy's compassion, and, you know, he uh, he starts to cry in the middle of this. And, um, you know, yes, yes, it's a three-hanky crime, and that's how, he, um, that's how Albert talks to him back. And... Um, and he gets up, he tells them off, he's like, I don't like how you talk to people. And then, you know, he storms out of the room and, um, you know, Lucy's very pleased. She's like, yay, somebody told off the mean man. And, um, yeah, so from that point, actually, Albert does stay quiet for the rest of the time. And, um, you know, who knows, maybe that's what changed him to, to be a little, uh, easier to deal with for the cast. Um, yeah. <clears throat> But anyway, at the end of this scene, um, we get we get Cooper basically, you know, talking about the body count. You know, Laura Palmer is dead. Jacques Renault is dead. Uh, Ronette and Leo are in coma, uh, comas. <laughs> Waldo the bird is dead. And that leaves only the third man. So that's the second time the third man is mentioned. So next time we see Cooper, he's getting into bed and he's uh, dictating to Diane. Well, he's actually in his bed. And he says, Approximately 19 hours since the shooting incident, which nearly caused me to make a premature purchase of the proverbial farm. I am dog-tired. And all that makes me think of is how, in the future, they possibly use this dialogue. The writers of Twin Peaks use this dialogue to um, rhyme dead dog farm with all of that. Because, you know, make a purchase of a proverbial farm. You know, dead dog farm. And then, you know, dog-tired. It's like all possibly related to that moment. And, you know, again, it kind of goes with J.C. Hotchkiss's uh, Bardo theme that, you know, it's like maybe maybe he's, uh, maybe he's stuck in the afterlife uh, stages right here in Twin Peaks. And um, it's all kind of happening at once for him. <clears throat> but then he goes on and says, a man can only go so long without submitting to a period of rest. And then a little bit later, sleep deprivation is a one-way ticket to temporary psychosis. And, um, you know, he blames his lack of sleep 
on or, or his lack of resting on seeing the giant. Um, you know, so is he denying it here? Um, you know, after after he's been awake for even longer, like, is he so delusional that he's unsure that the giant wasn't just a dream? Um, you know, I mean, Laura in the diary in the the like when she was 12 and even some 13, um, you know, she thought Bob was just a dream. She thought her time in the woods was just dreams. So, um, yeah, it's a similar frequency of understanding. You know, it's like before you have enough information you just kind of think maybe it has to be a dream because it can't possibly be too real. Um, but anyway, after that, uh, he turns off his recorder and then he turns off his light. And then we see the giant return. Now, before the spotlight comes in, we see a close-up of Cooper covering his eyes with his arm. And, um, you know, it's like, you know, he's got like his elbow kind of uh, above his nose. That's kind of how he's holding himself. And um, we see the giant in the dark waving his hand in front of Cooper. And, um, you know, is is he doing a thing where he's trying to get Cooper's attention in a non-audio kind of way? Um, but anyway, he's like leaning forward as he's like, you know, um, stepping backwards away from Cooper's bed, um, you know, still looking for any sign that Cooper is paying attention. And, um, you know, the, the giant is apparently really solid in the dark yet when, um, when the big spotlight kicks in so that, um, they're requesting Cooper's audience officially, uh, the, the giant rematerializes, um, as if maybe he wasn't there. Or maybe he's materializing into the light. So either maybe he's from one frequency to another, or, um, you know, it, it almost gives me like a stage play um, vibe. You know, it's like you've, you've got the crew there in the dark doing their stuff to make sure that the scene is set. And then when the light comes on, then the, the actor enters. So like, is, is it kind of in that, you know, we'll see you at the curtain call kind of vibe? where like Lynch really was trying to make it sort of play like, or, um, or are there different giants, you know, <laughs> like, uh, like, uh, Jacoby said in secret history of twin peaks, you know, it's like, we, we want to help you. There, there are many of them that Jacoby noticed when he went into whatever plane he went into. Um, so was the first giant, the setup guy. And then the second giant, the, uh, the speaker, I don't know. There's, uh, there's ways to like that. Um, but anyway, Cooper notices the, the big giant spotlight all the way through like the sides of his arms or whatever. And he actually moves his arm and notices. And then the giant says, sorry to wake you. So we get an actual apology and, um, you know, it's like, what, why is he sorry? I mean, you know, is it a change of his state of awareness? You know, like I, I, uh, you know, it's or you know, just because you know, Cooper really does want his rest and he understands that he needs his rest now. Um, but anyway, Cooper wakes up and says, I am not dreaming. So, like, why this declaration? Um, is he convinced of this kind of experience now? Like, does he know he's awake, or is this like a, a what, what do you call it? A, a is Cooper expressing that he understands the nuance that Major Briggs already expressed this episode between a dream and a vision? <clears throat> um, 
Anyway, from here we get the giant saying, I forgot to tell you something. So it's memory related because if you forget, there's a memory that's worth remembering. So what did he forget? Um, Maybe we would have known, but Cooper interrupts and he says, you were right about the smiling bag. And, um, you know, Cooper doesn't ask what that something is that the giant forgot or respond directly to it at all. He responds to whatever he wanted to say. And the giant responds directly to him. He says, the things I tell you will not be wrong. And um, then he holds up his hand, you know, as if to say stop. And um, it keeps Cooper from speaking. And then the giant says, better to listen than to talk. And, um, you know, Cooper, Cooper's kind of acting like a child in here. You know, it's like whatever he knows is all there is to know. And the intuition will solve everything else. Um, you know, <laughs> it, it's kind of like not using the hospital for recovery. You know, he thinks he has enough tools to make this happen all by himself. And um, he says, I believe you, except, you know, rather than immediately listening. So, <clears throat> you know, he's, he's getting there, but he's not quite there. And I, he will stop speaking for the rest of this. Um, but we've got um, we've got the giant saying, don't search for answers all at once. A path is being formed by laying one stone at a time. So is this what the giant forgot to tell Cooper? Or, you know, like, did he forget to tell Dale how to investigate? Uh, you know, sh- should instinct have been enough for, for Cooper to figure it out? But the giant learned that this isn't the case, and now he has to come back and tell him? You know, it's like, I don't know. Um, you know, Cooper's... Cooper's learning here, though, because all he does is nod. And then and then the giant says, one person saw the third man. And um, why does he use the word third man instead of a name like Leo? Because this is associated with that case that uh, the giant isn't permitted to talk about, probably. Um, either that or um, does he use the third man because it's words that will be understood. You know, Cooper knows that the third man is the guy who did the killing. And then the giant says, this is how you're going to understand that I'm speaking of Laura's killer. The giant goes on three have seen him. Yes, but not his body. So the three are Cooper, Sarah, and Ronette as best as I can figure it. The giant says one only known to you ready now to talk. It's about Ronette, but why not her name? Same, same logic as I just mentioned. Um, you know, not permitted to talk about the case. Uh, Leo is unrelated, so he gets a name, and Renette is absolutely related, so she doesn't get a name. Um, Cooper says nothing rather than asking who. <laughs> that would have been a good time to interrupt because he's listening. Uh, but um, anyway, the um, th- after that, the giant says, one more thing, you forgot something. So what did Cooper forget? I mean, probably the Audrey note, but, you know, if she's unrelated, she could be named too, that, you know, the note from Audrey is under your bed or, you know, some, some various code about that, you know, under, under the mattress, which you speak is a note from Audrey or, you know, just (laughs) some, some goofy thing like that could have made it a little bit clearer, just like the clue at Leo's house. Um, but anyway, um, he says that, 
after he's done talking about the case from what I can tell. And this is when the gold ball shows up. So is this the, the gold ball? Is that the thing that the giant forgot? I would say that is probably the answer. But um, it's said so out of order that I'm just not quite sure. And, um, you know, I'm pretty confident that was done by design. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, so this gold ball, um, you know, the giant holds up his left hand. And he's at the foot of Cooper's bed. And directly under that hand, a gold ball generates kind of from the bed line of Cooper. And, um, you know, it's it's in line with his, uh, with his shins. <clears throat> And uh, this this ball moves up away from the bed a little bit and heads straight forward into Cooper's throat. And, you know, his his throat's even a little glowy as it's happening. And it ends up taking all of the spotlight with it. And the only light left is from the hallway door. Now, Tyler, from talking backwards, he was absolutely new at the time. Like, he'd never seen anything in the future of Twin Peaks. He, he's, he was, like, not privy to any of the spoilers. Um, he said he said it felt like the giant was throwing a memory back in his head, which, you know, goes right along with everything else thematically, and I think it's fairly accurate, too. Um you know, Cooper lies back in the dark, and he's obviously unsettled from this. So, uh, you know, did did he get a gold light orb that gave Cooper a memory of what he forgot? Um, you know, based on future episodes, not likely. This seems a little less connected. I mean, you got to ask, since it's a golden orb made of light, is this like the Laura orb? You know, it's like both Laura and Cooper are Bob targets. You know, could this be an armor of sorts for that? Um, or a marking that they're going to be Bob targets or that they already are? Um, you know, is, is this um, is this a message or a programming? Um, I know that uh, when John Thorne spoke to Counter Esperanto, he would talk about uh, the programming that the giant seems to do. And... Um, you know, like he, he loads up or the fireman version in part 14 loads up Andy with a bunch of information. Uh, he does seem to load Cooper up with information. So is this how they actually load people up with information? Was that gold ball going to Sarah Palmer? Was it waiting for Laura? You know, it's like there's all these things with these gold balls. I mean, it, it could be it could be preparations like uh like when Cooper was brought in to the firemen at the very beginning of season three, where, you know, four, three, zero, you know, it's like uh, pay attention to all these things happening and then you will be able to understand. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, this golden orb is also not like the Laura orb. I mean, first of all, we can't see it up close to see what's in it. Um, you know, like what still image is in there for Cooper. Um you know, maybe it's maybe it's the homecoming picture. <laughs> maybe it's the uh, maybe it's the same exact lo uh, the orb. You, know, you never know. Um, you know, he he took it out from the Great Northern where it was planted decades ago, and then it made it into Cooper's throat. You know, <laughs> who can say? There's a lot of good stuff though. I might have to actually explore that thing I just said. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe it's a thing where. Um, you know, this is what Dale needs to be an active tulpa after he's, a, you know, like th this is the thing that solidifies his ability to be an emanation that exists in Twin Peaks. Um, 
you know, maybe this is the thing that causes Cooper to be able to split, or maybe it's a seed. Uh, you know, there, it's um, either way, it seems like it's definitely some kind of fortification for the upcoming battle with Bob, you know, armor, protection, a tool, any of that kind of language. Um, it definitely seems like a transfer of information. But the interesting thing for me is like, it's, does this gold ball actually open up Ronette's ability to wake up and experience her vision and memory of Ronette? Like, is this helping her wake up? And um, why in Cooper's throat? I mean, is it because he needs to speak this truth, this, um, this stuff that comes from the gold ball? Does he have to process it and then be able to um, communicate it outward into the world? I mean, he is a strong sender, and he does rely on intuition. So I wouldn't be shocked if this is helping him move forward in the case, in the life, and um, you know, possibly even um, getting him ready for the the split in episode twenty nine. <clears throat> Not that Lynch would have known that at the time, but you know, he he likes to plant seeds and see what they grow into, and this could have been one of those. That pretty much covers the ground for Cooper in this episode, and um, it definitely covers the ground of um, of the giants. So we're going to keep moving on to the next question, which is, how does the Major's vision contribute to that understanding of, of reality in Twin Peaks? So first thing I got to ask is, did Briggs's vision happen on the same frequency as Cooper's giant visit? Probably. Um, you know, Cooper, talking about dreams, he says, do you know where dreams come from? Acetylcholine neurons fire impulses into the forebrain. These impulses become pictures. The pictures become dreams, but no one knows why we choose these particular pictures. And Briggs on dreams here, he says, it's the sorting and cataloging of the day's events by the subconscious. So they kind of see it a little bit differently, and um, the major seems to be a little more Jungian about it. Um, <clears throat> Now, in that same in that same period where Briggs is talking about dreams, he says it was a vision. And he said it's the mind revealing itself to itself. Again, a very Jungian kind of way to put it. Um, and as clear as a mountain stream, he knew that's what his vision was that he's going to describe to Bobby here. Um, so he's already sitting in a booth at the double R when Bobby walks in and, you know, orders something from the counter. And um, the major, you know, greets him, you know, says, son. And, um, you know, he uh, he calls him son, which means he's connecting with him on the, uh, you know, the familial level. And, um, you know, would you care to join me? So Bobby snuffs out a cigarette, which is something that his dad's wanted him to do for all this time anyway. And, um, you know, he's actually open to the dialogue. You know, it's, uh, I mean, he, sure, he lays down in the booth <laughs> like, a, like a typical teenager, you know, who's uh, disaffected. But, you know, he's there and he's actually listening to his dad. And, um, you know, uh, the major talks to him. You know, it's like, how was school? And, um, 
you know, Bobby actually asks him a question back. He reciprocates. He says, how was work? And, um, you know, what it, it comes, it, it gets to what is it you exactly do? And, um, <laughs> the major can't talk about that. He says it's classified. Um, but you know, that that's just what he's permitted to say, let's say using the giant's language. Um, but then he offers Bobby pie, which Bobby passes on, but, um, you know, then we get the information about the uh, the vision that he had. You know, it's a it's a veranda of a vast state. There's light from within it gleaming uh, from <laughs> within the gleaming radiant marble. So we have light emanating from this place, which kind of gives me a um, a white lodgy sort of vibe to it. Kind of like later on, even though Frost says this is not and you know that. Um, the time when he gets abducted after uh, being out with Cooper in the woods, that was apparently the very first time that he's gone into the White Lodge per Mark Frost. So in this case, this is more like a dream, like how um, like how Dale entered um, the Red Room spot in um, in the, the Lynch directed episode three. Or, uh, oh, good Lord, the Lynch directed episode two, the third overall episode. Oh, boy. Now I'm doing it. The major talks about how this place was the place where he was born. So it's almost like it gives me a vibe of similar to the White Lodge. But like, you know, it's almost like that pre-space place where we all come from. Uh, probably the unified field, according to how Lynch would see it. Um, and then... Um, being there, it was a reunion with the deepest wellspring of my being. So again, it kind of feels like he was like in touch with the whole, with the whole of, you know, what we are inspired by here. And, um, you know, his son comes up to the door there and, um, and the major talks about how his son was happy and carefree, living a life of deep harmony and joy. And, um, in this vision, they embrace where there is nothing withheld. That was exact language from the major. And in that moment, they are one. So the major woke with this tremendous feeling of optimism and confidence for Bobby's future. <clears throat> now, where this scene takes place, for context, it's right after Norma sees Ed with Nadine at the hospital, and then there's a commercial break. But for Bobby's context, this actually takes place after Bobby saw Shelley at the hospital. Um, so Shelley begins this episode alone. She says, um, she says, Bobby, while watching the destruction of the mill um, in one of the early uh, uh, one of the early scenes. And, um, you know, I, I think she's assuming that he's dead here. And then Bobby arrives later with flowers for Sleeping Beauty, as he refers to her. So, you know, again, somebody's dreaming. Um, Re uh, regular Twin Peaks reference to dreams in the waking world. Um, and it's kind of like waking from a nightmare. Um, you know, Shelly wakes up and Leo's handled and Bobby's actually here. And, uh, you know, they, they hug and they kiss and they, they, they do that little cute with the, with the hair, uh, that they, you know, they grab each other's hair and do the, the barking, which is like a, a peaceful way for Bobby to be in touch with the hur, 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 like he did to James and the pilot, you know, it's like, he's got a positive side for barking too. Uh, and, um, 
you know, at the end of this interaction, Bobby tries to say, you're my girl, like, you know, like Leo or like he would say to you know, like, like like Leo would say to Shelly or like Laura, he would say to Laura. And um, this leads Shelly to say, I love you. And, um, you know, then we have Bobby waking up. He's like, I guess I love you, too. And he says this twice, which, you know, again, that kind of signifies that it's it's getting closer to truth. And while he's while he's stewing over this, while he's processing this new thing that he just learned about himself, he never breaks eye contact with Shelly. He never looks away. And, you know, this this is like one of those love is the key kind of breakthrough moments. And this key unlocks something in, in Bobby because, you know, Laura trained him to bottle up everything and, you know, expect nothing back if if he were to express himself. So he just doesn't express himself anymore. And this is just like at the funeral where Bobby is surprised by his unnoticed conviction, you know, his, his belief that, like, you know, we're all we're all guilty here. You know, it's like, he didn't know he was going to say that. He didn't know he was going to say, I love you too. Or I guess I love you too. You know, it's like, he, <laughs> he is so out of touch with what's actually like strongly going on inside himself. And, um, you know, Shelly's understandably underwhelmed by how all this happened, but you know, this, this is Bobby right here, accepting that he can be loved and that he can love like, this is huge for him. Uh, you know, th there's like this frequency change and understanding change right here in the scene with Shelly. And it readied him for the dialogue with his father where, you know, he puts out the cigarette and he comes over and he actually speaks to his father, which I don't think he could have done if he hadn't already had that experience with Shelly that blew his mind. Now, another thing that opened him up possibly is is the major's use of offering the pie. The huckleberry pie was particularly fresh today. Um, and, and there's this food thing all throughout this episode too. Um, you know, Bobby mentions that hospitals are a dangerous place, crawling with sick people and that food can kill you. And, uh, you know, the <laughs> Jacoby's lack of improvement in the hospital bed, you know, it's like, well, he, uh, the, the nurse tells Doc Hayward, you know, it's like, well, he took some food. And then Doc says, you know, my God, could that be it? And, uh, <laughs> you know, Cooper, uh, you know, Cooper at the hospital, you know, it's like, Doc, when the will is invoked, the recuperative powers of the physical body are simply extraordinary, which implies that the the kind of healing he needs can't happen at the hospital. It's not the right kind of healing. And it's just like how it's not the right kind of food, uh, you know, that, that kind of all associates together. And um, the food that Bobby has offered at the double R is the huckleberry pie, which is particularly fresh and delicious, according to the major. So, you know, we get we get Norma, um, you know, talking how, you know, in, Nor in, in season three, Walter tells her, you know, it, that, you know, it's sourced with the best ingredients, regardless of cost. You know, it's like you have to worry about cost. You can't just make it with love. But this is made with love. And, uh, you know, you've got You've, you've got that one random guy, you know, hot damn, this pie is good. Uh, it, it kind of almost felt like jumping the shark moment. Um, you know, it, it kind of killed the suspension of disbelief for me for a minute, even when I was a 12 year old watching this. But, um, you know, it, it, it felt kind of like a celebration for the audience. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, this is Twin Peaks. We're back. And um, it also ends up balancing out all the hospital food jokes. You know, it's like you, you've got 
you've got somebody hanging a hat on how good and how love-fueled Norma's pies are. And then you've got all these people like, you know, Pete going when he, when he smells, when he smells the, the hospital food, you know, it's like, there's so many jokes about how bad the hospital food is and how good Norma's pies are. So, you know, it's like, you've got, you've got the thing that can help you and the thing that can't. And, you know, it's like, there, there's this polarity with food as well. And, uh, you know, you've got the major on the positive frequency of that. So more growth for Bobby, more growth for the major, and um, you know more more signifiers that Norma's pies are great. You know it's like even before before Bobby comes in, um, Norma comes into Shelley's room, and you know they talk about you know pie, and and Shelley says bring the whole pie or bring bring the whole pie. You know, it's a chocolate peanut butter pie that Norma talked about, uh, and um, Norma says I may bring you two. So again, another repetition of <laughs> I, I'm going to bring it two times. We're going to say something twice. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> and you know we'll we'll be talking about this, but you know Log Lady's Pitch Gum makes an appearance here, um, and you know uh, she in the Log Lady preview or, or the the Log Lady intro already talked about how her gum is like this balanced stuff, so it adds another spiritual level to the diner, and. Uh, yeah, you know, then Meals on Wheels shows up with the the intent that food can help people, um, and then there's the warm milk that Cooper never drinks. Food is all over this episode, invoking certain things. And you know the donut, the donuts and coffee spread when when they're uh, you know laying out the whole case. Um, it's um, you know superimposed over the donuts like we live inside a dream. Uh, you know the real events play out again. Uh, the the real events playing out almost like you know like a haunted house kind of replaying of things uh but that was done over the policeman's dream which is a spread of great donuts and food kind of gives another indicator of of uh, alignment where jerry horn is talking to ben horn on their way to the meeting with hank where he says you know that like we, we come in mid-conversation he, he says I ate it, but I didn't really know what it was, you know, and, and we hear this thing that's decadent, but also kind of gross possibly. And, um, it leads in it, that leads the horns into a successful negative plan wrapping up with, um, with, uh, Hank and, uh, oh yeah. And then that whole way there, there's this neat little thing that I think gets picked up in on the air, you know, it's like Mr. Horn, Mr. Horn, Mr. Horn, Mr. Horn. It kind of reminds me of the hurry up twins from, uh, from on the air where they were running joke kind of like that. You know, it's like there's, there's rhythms that, that Lynch likes and he just dumps it in wherever he likes it. Um, and then the only other time we get food in this episode, which we will definitely be talking about next is at the Hayward supper club with, um, where the, uh, the conversation around the dinner table is lively. And also there's music in the air. Hey kids, it's Don Shanahan from the Cinephile Hissy Fit, one of the podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network. If you've been enjoying this show, come listen to Will Johnson and I fight it out over cinema's best and worst on Cinephile Hissy Fit. Find us and all the great shows over on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. And bringing up music, 
there's a lot of it in this episode, and most of it ends up coming through Leland. Um, but yeah, there um, because of <clears throat> because of the little man in the red room. You know, there's where we're from. There's always music in the air. It always leads me to think when there's a lot of music in an episode, what is the effect on Twin Peaks when there's music in the air? I said, you know, since it since it's mostly through Leland, I mean, the first tip off that something strange has happened is, of course, that his hair turned white. Um, you know, the the very first scene with Ronette happens where she's kind of stirring in her hospital bed and um you know then the, and, you know she halfway opens up her eyes and then there's a commercial break and then when she comes or when it when the show comes back the very next scene has leland in it with the white hair so like is there a certain amount of ronette waking up that halfway invokes this or like did she wake up because leland and bob are on you know that are are officially making their presence known you know, do, does she know that he'll be revealing himself more? And because he's revealing himself more, does that make Ronette wake up? You know, we'll, we'll be talking more about Ronette later, but like, I, I like the way the scenes juxtapose against themselves and, um, you know, give, give meaning because of the scene arrangement. Now, before Leland walks in, there is a scene between Maddie and Sarah in the Palmer house. Um, you know, Sarah starts out by asking, you know, it's like, do you miss your mom? Um, so she's kind of being real here, except that Maddie sidesteps through this because she she uh, Maddie is too preoccupied to remember. Um, to remember her dream, like she hasn't actually remembered it fully, but. You know, it's like she's trying to right then, and she can't do the small talk stuff with Sarah. Um, and Manny does talk to her about a dream. You know, it's like, I, I you know, I had a dream about this spot. And, um, you know, she's looking down at the rug, and it reminds me of, I mean, it, it kind of rhymes with, uh, with uh, Inland Empire, where, um, you know, Grace Zabriskie is in that scene talking across from uh, Laura Dern, who's the actress, who's just about ready to accept a role. And, um, you know, Zabriskie's uh, uh, character is talking about a, a curse, you know, like, I, I think it's a gypsy curse. <laughs> and, um, like, you know, it's like, uh, uh, like, what was it? Like, you know, bloody fucking murder. And, yeah, like, it it's like this really creepy scene that's going to mess with um, Laura Dern's characters all the way through this whole movie. And um, it talks about how tomorrow you'll be over there. And it's like a couch across the, um, it, it's a couch across the room that they can both look at and see. And it kind of makes me feel like, like, um, Maddie is seeing something that's going to happen to her right over there in a lot of ways. Like, you know, is this, is this kind of a, is this kind of a Lynch technique where like, you know, his, his people that are like sort of attached to the dream, like they can kind of almost see the future. 
I mean, we'll get there, but the interruption that's needed before Maddie can actually see the full vision um, is Leland popping up from behind that um, from behind that uh, privacy um, that privacy screen. <clears throat> and you know, he comes in singing Mary Z Dotes. And um, yeah, okay, so there's music in the air. And it's a wordplay song too. It's like Marezy Dotes or Mares Eat Oats. Um, you know, it's jumbled nonsense unless you can break the code. You know, it's like once you listen to the song long enough, you realize it's not just a bunch of syllables like slapped up against each other. It's it's just garbled. You know, it's like the syllables are in the just wrong place for it to make sense written down. And, um, you know, it's it's like the backwards speaking getting moved, you know, turned forward. So, like, you can still understand it. But like there's this this little bit of a. Uh, a hiccup trying to get it so like there, it's really fun that there's this this old school like what 30s 40s song um that kind of has a similar technique to the red room as far as like giving you something extra to think about honestly the song also has stuff about animals in it you know mirrors uh little lambs you know it's like all this stuff and uh you know, like we'll we'll hear it all over the place about, you know, like drug, you know, the people that are into the drug scene, they're always using nicknames like the zebra, the penguin. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, we have we have animals here kind of subbing in for real words in a way, too. Now, I I think um, there was a space constraint in here because, you know, like did Leland actually materialize behind that screen or was he waiting there the whole time? You know, I, I'm just brushing this off as a continuity error because, you know, that was the, the best place for Leland to pop out, even if it didn't like structurally make sense. And while he's doing his song and dance, Sarah and Maddie are absolutely frozen. You know, it's like they're they're unable to react to him. They just like bear witness to him, basically. He's a huge disruption to the frequency that they were on. And they were both on different frequencies anyway. Um, but yeah, he sings, he dances. Um, honestly, the white hair kind of reminds me of Billy from Ellie McBeal, where um, you know, he's the love interest of of the the lead character. And um, you know, suddenly one day he goes like bleached white, uh, or you know, like um the uh, the platinum blonde um hair dye thing and uh, he goes like massively uh chauvinistic and uh he um you know it's like he he's like the new billy and um he uh he basically dies before the season's over like this was his way of like showing that like there's madness going on in his head because there's this um i i think it was a it was either a tumor or an aneurysm. I can't remember which one it is, but like it was affecting him for a little while. And then he just drops dead in the courtroom. Uh, so, you know, it's like there's this break from reality there, too, for the hair color change. And um, I, I would say the same thing is definitely happening with Leland here. Um, why the white hair? Uh, closer to Bob, closer to the white of the eyes. I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the, did did the pain dissipate? and uh and take uh leland's hair color with it um is he now unable to remember like is is it a masking thing over his um over his pain over any bob memories you know it's like is he uh is you know like bob helped <clears throat> bob helped kill jacques 
uh, we'll, we'll get there in the Jacoby scene, you know, the, cor- the scorched engine oil. Um, you know, it's uh, um, Jacoby mentioning scorched engine oil with the smell uh, while Leland was in there killing Jacques. You know, that, that kind of means that Bob was present. So, you know, he could be he could be taking over Leland or he could be um, just um, hiding, hiding everything from Leland, including himself. And um, a quick interesting thought about the smell. Um, Lynch in uh, Twin Peaks Behind the Scenes, uh, he he's made a mention of the art comes first. In the art life, you don't get married and you don't have families and you don't have studios and models and you think and you drink a lot of coffee and you smoke cigarettes and you work mostly at night. Your place smells like oil paint, the smell of Bob, and you think beneath the surface of things and you live a fantastic life of ideas and creative stuff. So the smell of oil paint isn't actually good for anybody, but it kind of it it works as this byproduct that happens when you're kind of in the throes of being creative and like living with that kind of a brain pattern. So like, I kind of feel like the byproduct of the scorch engine oil is living under the effect of Bob, who is kind of keeping you in a very particular kind of flow state. So that'll be something to keep in mind as we keep going in this show. Um, as far as the effect of Leland's disruption to others, um, you know, he distracts Maddie from seeing her vision. But in another way, he could be opening her up to that vision because his his crazy antics draw Sarah away. Like when he goes away, then Sarah follows after him, you know, probably trying to figure out, you know, about the uh, about the singing and the dancing and about the hair. (laughs) So it leaves Maddie alone to experience the vision the same way that. Maddie doesn't experience the vision in the next episode until James and Donna run off after the song, leaving uh, leaving Bob free to like climb over the couch at her. And I'll be talking more about Maddie later. But as far as this goes, I'm following Leland now because we're talking about the mu- the, the the music in the air um, at the Great Northern. Um, you know, we we have Leland interrupting two other people, and you know it's Ben and Jerry. And they join in the dance. And do they join in the dance because they are um, because they're more present with Leland? Um, I, I would say probably, you know, it's like they're they're on a similar frequency. They're causing trouble. They're mischief. They're, uh, you know, <laughs> they are about as trickster as you're going to get for um, people not officially attached to the Red Room space. And, uh, you know, what do you get? You get Jerry Horn doing the worm, you know, things like that. And uh, they, they just jump right into the dance. And, you know, Jerry, he really is a playful guy. But in this episode already, we've seen Jerry being mean to Blackie during a heroin withdrawal. You know, it's like he doesn't want to give her the the, the heroin until it's um, almost too late for her. Um, and that was in a place that's bathed in all this uh, buzzing neon. In in uh, Neon Peaks by David Titterington over at 25YL, he says... Um, Louis de Miranda says neon unsettles us because, in a sense, we too are tubes of electrocuted chaos held in place by man-made shapes. We are Rilke's intensified skies, 
trapped like the Gnostic soul in a body. Mystics all over the world describe the soul as a ray of light, crackling with energy. But energy that crackles on the one I jack sign is too much energy, and that's why we hear it crackling. You know, it, it kind of signifies the appetite never reaching satisfaction. You know, it's like no matter how much you can, uh, how much electricity you can pump through that sign, it still can't uh, do anything more than it does with a normal output of, of electricity. Another interesting thing about Blackie there, um, you know, she says, why is he holding out on me twice? And um, then she kind of she kind of like cringes underneath this this hanging light that uh, Jerry angles straight toward her. So, you know, things in the in the uh, <laughs> in the one eyed jacks hold up to light about as well as anything in darkness does. They kind of cower from it. And yeah. And that's the kind of guy that Jerry is deep down. And that's the kind of guy that uh, works with Jerry, who is Ben Horn. And, um, you know, they're dancing with Leland. And um, they're kind of, I think they're happy to hear that he says, I'm back, back and ready. Now, again, is Leland back? Because he's... um, He's finally found a way to bury his pain. Um, is he back because the guilt is lifted because the um, the murderer is now dead? Um, you know, it's it's really on theme with what Ben and Jerry are talking about because they're talking about how um, how Catherine is dead, and um, you know, like they're they're talking about their tracks being covered. And I would assume that Bob is particularly happy because the one guy who could probably incriminate him. Uh, Jacques is now dead. Following the horns for a minute, the other times that we see the horns, they're basically calling Hank the bicep, which, um, you know, I was talking in the uh, season one finale, how he was kind of like the arm of the horns. And here they just call it straight out. So like, um, except, you know, in this case, they're, they're only giving him credit for being part of the arm. And, uh, yeah, so like there, there's an interesting thing about the power structure in the real world of, um, you know, Red Room Parallels here again. But the music doesn't actually follow the horns. It follows Leland. And the next time we see him, it's at the uh, the Hayward Supper Club. And um, an interesting thing there is the establishing shot of the Hayward House. That's the first instance we see of rain. And it's, um, you know, it's in a Lynch episode. So, like, does the rain mean something? Um, In episode 16, we're going to see that the sprinklers are on um, when Leland is in the jail cell. And um, it it brings out Bob. You know, it's like the the um, the the crazy sounds and like just the you know, it, it seems like Bob reacts to rain in a lot of ways. And, you know, here Leland is dancing so frantically in this scene that, you know, he sends himself into a collapse. And, um, you know, and even even as Leland has collapsed, he says, I feel happy. Begin the begin. And, um, you know, it kind of goes with Leland's appetite for dancing, being insatiable. It's like, you know, it's like he's almost buzzing like the the neon sign in One-Eyed Jacks. You know, it's like there's this endless, um, this endless pressure to take more, whether or not the, um, you know, the human vessel can even handle it. 
So in this dinner scene, we've got Gersten, who is the MC of the night. You know, she wears this fairy princess disguise to be other than just herself. And, um, you know, she talks about all these accomplishments she has, you know, this this self-pressure that she puts on herself. And we'll see that come out in a negative way in season three. But here, you know, it's it's sort of almost cute. You know, it's like, I don't have to worry about being ashamed anymore. And, you know, like because it's Alicia Witt as a, as a youngster, you know, you kind of go like, oh, you know, poor kid, she'll get over it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's... Um, it's interesting, you know, she brings the music. And of course, we never see her again after this either. Um, you know, th there was that one scene last season where Donna and her parents um, are in the uh, are in the double R. Um, and that's when Audrey uh, comes in and like, you know, uh, Donna goes over and like, you know, they share this thing about, you know, isn't it too dreamy? And, you know, Cooper drinks uh drinks coffee and uh, you know like that that scene you know there's no other sisters there i mean there's plausible deniability that maybe they had other things going on for church and everything but in this case you know <laughs> it seems like gersten's only there to be the musician to underscore the scene because this scene needs music and the scene also has harriet reading her laura poem um over that music and um you know i'll, I'll go into that later and um then there's Mendelssohn being played over the dinner conversation. Uh, and at this point, this is the only mention of jobs lost from the fire. Um, it's sidestepped from, I mean, it's sidestepped into how Ben's development plans might be effective. So, you know, it's like the, the little people are just kind of collateral damage here, uh, which is an interesting thing for Twin Peaks to be doing. Uh, anyway, we've got, um, you know, Doc Hayward after after you know talking about or after after being stonewalled, you know, it's like, well, um, you know, client uh, client privacy, you know, we can't really talk about that. And then um, Doc Hayward brings, you know, it's like, what ha what the hell happened to your hair? And um, Leland talks about how he must have turned a corner. And you know, Sarah during this whole uh, monologue by Leland, you know saying what I think he just needs to hear himself say, Sarah is not buying it. And, um, you know, then we get, we get Leland talking about, you know, there's happiness, you know, and is it because that's all that's left or that the rest is being masked over? And, um, you know, then he's like, you know, it's like, I feel so happy. We need a song. And then he brings up, get happy, you know, and, and get happy's lyrics. You know, it's like, forget your troubles. Um, all that ends up doing is get you collapsing into yourself. You know, it's like if you, if you bury your stuff, you're, it's going to get you. You know, there's no forgetting for long. And then this song has hallelujah. And, you know, that makes me think of the waiter in, in the Red Room scene in episode 29. So, like, I, I think this is probably sort of a callback to that same energy. And the song's got a note about Judgment Day. Um you know, it's basically a song about show no fear, be firm in how you live and your choices. And, um, you know, it's like, is is Leland's song choice actually what makes him collapse? You know, it's like, is it the wrong kind of thing? Because, you know, it's like, forget your troubles. Um, come on, be happy. And, like, there's so much that he overloads. Now, we do see music again one more time when Gersten's playing the music in the final credits. Um, 
you know, is it is it trying to comfort us after Ronette's nightmare? Or does like does it give us a place to go to to look away from that traumatizing event? You know, it's like there music can be a place to go when you need to look away. It's it's kind of a comfort, but it's also the thing where the red room lives alongside it. Now, leaving music behind for this episode, um, it's worth asking, how does the normal people in the town of Twin Peaks respond to the fire? Now, we're never going to get a real solid look at the working class in Twin Peaks, really, at, at all. Um, but, um, you know, we, we get the mention that, you know, jobs are lost here. And, um, you know, it's like there, there's a lot of, like, real-world effect of that fire. And, you know, we get a little bit of that through some of the characters in Twin Peaks. And while we're getting a little bit of that, we are also kind of seeing how the metaphorical fire of, you know, all, all the lodge spaciness is also kind of affecting the um, the people of Twin Peaks. And those are the people that this show tends to focus on, is the people that are getting it from both ways, from from the real world and from this, um, from this uh, supernatural sort of place, too. So Lucy recaps most of what we need to remember. You know, Leo is shot, Jacques is strangled, Shelly and Pete got smoke inhalation, Catherine and Josie are missing, Nadine is in a coma. Um, you know, Doc Heward makes a mention that it's the craziest night since the Elks Club fire of 59. And um, that is something that we'll get repeatedly in uh, Twin Peaks media. Um you know, there, there's this repetition of fires burning down businesses, you know, the, the, the Grange and Thor's trading post from the access guide. And um, there's at least one big one um, where there's like a, a fire and, you know, like where, where the logs are um, going down. I, I can't even remember that whole thing, but it's in secret history of Twin Peaks and um, uh, about a lot of um, woodsmen who die in the fire. Um Oh, yeah. And then the log lady's husband also dies in a fire. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of real fire coming out. Yeah. It, it, it's like, is it the effect of the supernatural manifesting as fire or is it just a thing that happens around the town? Um, either way, it's prone to it here. All right. So we've already talked about Andy and I'm counting him as kind of a regular um uh, a regular sort of guy here because he he is in the original seasons. Um Yet he's kind of in touch with, you know, knowing the Cooper's in trouble. He he finds uh, Leo shot in the living room. Um, he um, he looks into Leo's alibi for the, the bank's murder uh, and he discovers clues. You know, the circle brand boots, the cocaine. Um, we see Shelly, um, you know, she sees the burned remains of the mill. And, you know, when she sees this kind of destruction, she almost loses hope. And um, she doesn't get it back until Norma talks to her about, you know, Pi and, you know, just um, their connection. And then Bobby comes in and, um, you know, she can admit love. You know, we've talked about them already. And um, Lucy, she um, she speaks to Philip Gerard in this in this uh, episode. And Gerard is a lot different than he was in that one uh, season one scene where he was talking about his mom tattoo. You know, <laughs> he's not smiley. He's, um, I mean, he is smiley, but he's like in that creepy way. And he's got that undertone kind of, you know, the, um, the droney music underneath him um, when he shows up. 
And, um, you know, that almost seems like an after effect of everything too. And, uh, that conversation with Lucy is actually the same rhythm as the um, insurance salesman conversation uh, in um, in season three, where, you know, he's looking for Sheriff Truman for like insurance purposes. Um, and, you know, instead of like which Sheriff Truman, one is gone and one is fishing. And yeah, <laughs> like it's like in this case, Lucy only has the one option. So she says Sheriff Truman is here, but he's busy at the moment. And um yeah, so like he's still in two places, you know, it's like he's he's present, but he's unavailable. So like he, he's kind of an absence and a presence. Yeah. Hmm. What does that sound like uh, thematically? But yeah, Gerard talks about, you know, it's like at my convenience, you know, he, um, the sheriff told him to come by at his convenience and, you know, convenience store. <laughs> there, there's all these words that are so close and they rhyme. And like, you know, you could you could look the other way on them and consider a coincidence. Or maybe it is less of a coincidence and more of a resonance. One of the other normal townsfolk, we got Pete. Um, you know, in, in addition to his being the best reaction to the food that or whatever, <laughs> whatever he did, like, yeah, the, the, the way that only Jack Nance can deliver something, um, he gets a ride home from Harry and at the Blue Pine Lodge, um, uh, Harry asks, you know, it's like, where the hell is Josie? And, uh, we find out that, you know, she goes to Seattle every three months or so to, um, what I assume based on all the other stuff that we learn about her to check in with her contacts. And, um, you know, it's, it, this is setting up her actual backstory of having like this undercurrent herself, even though she's not in this episode. And, um, another, episode, or another absent character we get here is the, um, you know, the mention of Catherine and, um, Pete says, you know, pure hell to live with, plain hell. But once there was a little bit of heaven there, too. And Harry puts his hand on Pete's shoulder, which, um, you know, putting putting a hand on a shoulder is a huge thing. You know, it's almost like the circuit is complete where um, you are respecting someone. You are connecting with them, literally. And um, because Harry gave uh, Pete this kind of thing, you know, that kind of connection, he actually broke down right then and could admit that he loved Catherine. So a little bit of light bleeding in with a little bit of support. And, um, you know, this is when Jonathan Kunigai calls uh, from the Great Northern looking for Josie. And, um, you know, then he hangs up and calls Hong Kong before it shifts over to the horn, talking you know, horns talking about food and having their closed door meeting with Hank. So, you know, it's like you can have your moment of connection, but then the darkness is still there ready to give you a call anytime. The last scene I really want to talk about with the uh, with the normal people of the town is um, is regarding Ed. You know, he's dealing with Nadine putting herself into a coma and, you know, coma. <laughs> that's the thing with the head injuries and, you know, like sort of being in between dream and reality. Um and um, Ed starts out this whole thing talking about how he doesn't believe in fate, which to me says he's not easily open to dreams. Um, and, you know, he says, I always felt you make your own way, take care of your own, you pick up after yourself. So he's all about personal accountability. Yeah. But he's not so much into the visualizing and the dreaming like how Cooper is, um, you know, he's way less uh, connected to that kind of stuff to the point where 
it sounds like he's shutting himself off from it entirely. Yeah, we, we get a story that gets inverted entirely in Secret History of Twin Peaks, which I will definitely be talking about then, where it's almost like a, a mirror image of what we get here. Um, here we get um, Norma running off with Hank for a weekend, and Ed just like impulsively marrying Nadine while she's off those couple of days. Um, and, you know, Ed talks about, uh, you know, half joking, half drunk, half crazy. That's three halves, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, divisible by three, even though it's impossible to do it if you're talking about percentages. You know, Ed was being impulsive, but he wanted to get back to talking to Nadine about a divorce or an annulment or something. Um, but why couldn't he actually talk to her? Well, she was so happy, first of all, and Ed has a problem uh, breaking that sort of energy for someone. And um, also, of course, you know, he shot her eye out, which um, I thought it was absolutely hysterical the way everything happened in that scene. But, um, you know, as as far as Ed personally <laughs> you know he talks about how you know a couple months later norma married hank so i don't believe in fate you make your own bed you sleep in it so he did at one point believe in fate and dreams and norma is the person that he dreamed about he yeah, norma is the person that he could access that side of himself with she is his fate but fate is just in dreams, and he only has reality to work with. You know, it's like there's there's multiple people dealing with things in here. You know, you've got Major Briggs talking about visions. You've got Cooper talking about, um, you know, dreams. You've got uh, Rhonda talking about nightmares. And um, here we have Ed talking about none of them intentionally. So he kind of represents the everyman portion of this whole equation. And I find that extra interesting because, you know, 20, uh, 27 years later in part 15, we've got Ed kind of almost opening himself to a meditation state. You know, it's like Walter and Norma are talking in a booth and he's sitting at one of the uh, one of the, the counter uh, spots at the double R and he just closes his eyes and he starts to breathe, you know, almost like he is meditating. and. Um, you know, what ends up happening then? Norma's hand, her her hand and then her arm reaches in from the frame to touch his shoulder. Again, the touching the shoulder thing. But here in the episode dealing with dreams, visions, memories and nightmares. Ed is focused on the worldly state of things. And now talking about Ed, we've pretty much cleared the decks of everybody except for, you know, the people that are being influenced by Laura Palmer. So we'll be getting into that next, but right now we're going to hear some words from our fellow podcasters at the Ruminations Radio Network. Hey, this is Charlie, Triple C, from Brevity Box, a new and interesting podcast from the Ruminations Radio Network. If you're a fan of podcasts, we have a lot of great content to offer. Come check out our diverse group of podcasts and hosts at ruminationsradionetwork.com. All right, welcome back. We are back, and we're finally ready to look at Laura's absent presence. Even though she's an absent character, we get a lot of Laura seeping into the other characters of this show. Right now, we're going to look at 
what is Laura's presence here, and why shouldn't you wear her stuff? So the first character who's kind of reflecting parts of Laura is Audrey. Um, she's in Laura's old side job, wearing her, um, wearing the same kind of lingerie that you would wear in that in that um, position, and um, you know she puts on a mask. She she puts on a uh, a cat mask, the uh, the the porcelain one uh, above her bed to avoid her father's advances to protect her identity. You know that that's um, that's pretty much how Laura does it too. You know, it's like she she has to put some kind of mask over her to avoid knowing about her father's advances. But in this case with Audrey, you know, she puts the the porcelain mask over her face, and you know, had she not been keeping secrets she'd have probably gone home with Ben, you know, in trouble, obviously, but she would have gone home with her father after the S-N-A-G. Instead, we get her trapped here. You know, she's the princess in a castle. Um, you know, at the end, she even needs to pray to Cooper and uh, voice her intentions, you know, to, to say it aloud now about, you know, how she wants to... Um, how she wants to, um, you know, survive the experience essentially, and also help the investigation and invoke Cooper to help her. Um, but before that, you know, we've got the cat mask. It's similar to so many other disguises in this, you know, in, in this episode, even we've got Gersten doing her fairy princess costume. We've got Leland's white hair, um, the possibly connected giant and waiter identities. Um, uh, Philip Gerard and Mike in the insurance salesman scene or the the um, in the um, in the boot in the boot selling scene tied to needing Sheriff Truman. You know, it's like here. You know, I mean, the Great Northern and the Blue Pine Lodge all by themselves. You know, they've got the Native American art all over the walls hiding in plain sight like 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 wall paint, even though the Great Northern is the thing masking over all of that history. But yeah, for Audrey, we've got her wearing Laura's uniform, the the lingerie. And what ends up happening here is she gets captured by a part of Laura's life. You know, because as as, as Vonnegut will say in uh, Mother Night, he says, you know, be careful who you pretend to be because you are who you pretend to be. And um, and since she's kind of pretending to be a detective, pretending to be Laura, to be a, a pretend detective, um, she's also stalked by a predator. You know, like we have um, Ben in that scene, you know, as he's like trying to approach uh, Prudence, uh, we've got his arm and then his face shown in the mirror first. Um, and then he lurks, he prowls, he does this slow movement in in a very Bob style way. And, you know, I, I, that was just Bamer doing his thing. But, you know, it's it's interesting that that these men decide to act like uh, prowling animals um, when they're when they're approaching young ladies. And, you know, another thing that Ben Horn can't do here is he doesn't recognize Audrey's voice. You know, it takes Jerry um, saying that there's a snag twice before Ben recognizes and takes that seriously. And, um, you know, it's like he's stuck in this predator mode. Is that just how One-Eyed Jacks works? I mean, you know, we were talking about the neon signs and everything else. You know, it's like, it, it seems like it works that way. But does it also work that way to you know, for Audrey? Because she's basically invoking Laura. You know, whichever side of the argument you go on on that one, it doesn't really go well when you wear Laura's things. Okay, so Audrey's situation, she's in it 
in a way that like she's kind of backing into um inhabiting aspects of Laura. But then we get a little bit closer when we're talking about Maddie and Donna. Now, Maddie, in the last two episodes before this, uh, she was dressed as Laura, wearing Laura's actual clothes. Um, you know, I, I, you, <laughs> I've i made a case where she's likely marked by Bob in Easter Park. And, um, you know, the next morning after that is when she sees this image of the the blood superimposed, um, yeah, it's superimposed over the carpet like a vision. Um, and it's almost like her death is, um, you know, her death has happened. It's set in stone the same way all the other superimposed images have, ha you know, have happened. And, you know, it just happens that that's going forward in time. But Lodge Space is, you know, time walkie, so it seems like it makes sense. Um, so... Okay, so Leland sees Maddie in the park. And, you know, Bob also sees her in the park that way. Um, and then here, he's singing and dancing. He draws Sarah away from her. So she's left alone in the living room to see that her death is inevitable. I mean, it's not exactly a future memory, but it's um, it seems like it could be related. Um, and, you know, yeah, she will see more next episode after James and Donna leave the room after the singing. I will definitely talk in depth about that next time. As for this episode, the next time we see her, she's in a booth at the Double R, and she's wearing Laura's sunglasses and watching Donna enter. And Maddie is definitely seeming a lot more disaffected in this scene than she was um, in the Palmer living room when she's seeing the blood on the carpet. Now, as for Donna, there's a little bit of background in this because Lara Flynn Boyle is one of the actors who decided that um, she wanted to do something a little different with her role. And, you know, I mean, a lot of the actors were doing that um, during the hype of Twin Peaks. You know, it's like you know, just, just little tweaks here and there. Um, but Lara Flynn Boyle in particular uh, is a little more documented. You know, she wanted more uh, Sherilyn Fenn level attention. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that's probably why she got a whistle in the sheriff department, because I think uh, Lynch says, you know what, I'm listening to you, I hear you, and I see it. Uh, so, you know, he's he's giving her that, uh, <laughs> that extra kudos. <laughs> and, um, you know, as far as far as some of the other character resets um, that happen, it's not all necessarily just because actors want it. It's because, you know, the characters also need a reset. You know, we're going to get one from from Albert pretty soon, you know, to, to make him less of a jerk. Uh, we've got one where Bobby is now more sympathetic thanks to the major scene. Um, you know, the, the major himself, you know, he's a sage rather than a stick in the mud who slaps his kid at dinner. Um, but you know, what, what we get in this episode in terms of Donna is, um, I mean, Laura is being invoked by accidental imitation and also possibly because of the sunglasses. Okay, so at the double R, Maddie has been looking through these sunglasses for a while now. And, um, you know, then she gives them to 
then she gives him Nadana and says, you know, these are the sunglasses you were asking about. And um, Donna takes the sunglasses from Maddie, immediately puts them on, and she also spends the time to look through them a bit. Um, she immediately begins to smoke, and Maddie breaks her glasses. And, you know, Donna's facial reaction, she's like, well, that's crazy. <laughs> but, you know, she's kind of enjoying it, too. Um, we got both of these women acting with that disaffected Laura mode. You know, Maddie's in red, and... Um, you know, she she's already wearing it. She's Lodge adjacent, Mark for Death, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, she's got this influence of the Lodge space, which is, um, you know, typically coded in red. Um, and then we've got Donna in blue. And, you know, that's kind of coded for the uh, the worldly side of things. You know, it's like, um, and, uh, you know, they, they sit exactly parallel with each other. So they're almost like framing the table the way they're sitting and and they've got that red and blue balance that happens a lot with twin peaks um and both of them are literally seeing the world differently now and it's after literally looking through a frame that laura saw the world through and now they're kind of living in that like it's almost a truth you know, in, in, in a way, it's it's kind of a frequency change. It's a perception change. It's an understanding change. It's like how I already talked about with Bobby being able to see love. Now the ladies are able to see Laura's viewpoint. So they kind of become that viewpoint, however, uh, you know, however slightly or largely they go. You know, then they talk about uh, Jacoby being attacked because of them, Uh you know, Maddie's definitely upset about it. She's like, oh, we, we caused this. And then um, <laughs> Donna, she gets really, really noir here, uh, where you know, it's like, maybe the sun won't come up tomorrow if you wash your hair. And, you know, that's like the light won't come back. And then Donna comes up with this, um, you know, keep secrets kind of approach. And she says, the only way this won't come back to haunt us is if we keep quiet about what happened last night. I can assure you James is doing the same thing. Yet, this is the exact logic that will keep them stuck in this. You know, it's like they, you, you can't get out of something if you're keeping it in. And, um, you know, it, it, this is kind of Laura's mentality, too. You know, it's like if I just keep pushing forward, if I just keep holding on to it and, like, not telling people, um, I won't bring Bob into their lives. But... She's keeping Bob in her life in a lot of way. And so, like, th this is kind of what Donna's doing, too. It's not less help that Donna needs from people. She needs more help to get to an answer. You know, about James doing the exact same thing? It's like, he's not. In this episode, he, you know, he, um, <laughs> he goes over to Harry and tells Harry about you know, Laura talking about Bob, do you want to play with fire? Um, so like he's actually reaching out for help and he's actually getting somewhere. But after the the ladies talk about Jacoby, they start talking, you know, Maddie mentions how Leland's hair turned white. So they're, they're bringing that to the surface too, where both of them know about it. And, um, right when that happens, Norma comes up and immediately gives Donna a note about meals on wheels. Um, so Bob is invoked in a way 
and uh, then something slightly supernatural shows up right after it. And, uh, you know, then we get the log lady appearing here with the with the pitch gum on the walls and everything. You know, Dave from Talking Backwards, he he was one of many people who would say, you know, it's like, did she drop the note? Did uh, did, um, you know, is is the log lady there because she wrote the note? And I mean, it's probably more of a fortuitous confluence. You know, it's like Harold probably sent the note. Was it because Donna would be able to help them? I don't know. Um, she's barely there at the end of the diary. Um, you know, it's, it's an odd strategy for Harold to request Donna to help. Um, you know, I, you, you'd think you'd address it to James if you wanted to help, you know, to, to do genuine help. But I think Harold wanted sympathy from a like-minded role in, in, um, Laura's life. You know, it's like, I think Harold and Donna are kind of similarly damaged and um, they're in a similar um, zone as far as how Laura thought of them. So I think he was calling in someone who is more like him than not. Um, but if it wasn't, if it wasn't the log lady who delivered the note, why is she there? It's probably to represent the the cosmic importance of things. You know, it's like maybe she doesn't know why she's there. You know, it's like how she just knew in Laura's diary to uh, to be at the 1400 River Road gas station so that she could have that one conversation with Laura. You know, maybe she just needed to be there to kind of. Uh, you know, be an observer of this note appearing so that it actually happened and that it would, you know, be part of what um, what sets into motion events that will take Bob down out of his seat of, you know, abusing power. Now, talking about James a little bit more in depth, you know, after he plays the tape to Truman, he says, well, I remember this one night when we first started seeing each other. She was, uh, yeah, she was still doing drugs then. Well, we were in the woods, and she started saying this scary poem over and over about fire. And then she said, would you like to play with fire, little boy? Would you like to play with Bob? Would you like to play with Bob? So again, we've got saying Bob twice, Bob is important. You know, was it Laura or Bob sneaking through at that point? You know, because I, I still see her... Um, you know, saying fire, walk with me and, you know, like being all like black and white face makeup uh, to Harold that one time. You know, it's like, was this one of those moments when um, she was doing that to James, but he just didn't know it because he's so pure. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, James says, I don't know what she meant by that. Laura said a lot of nutty stuff. Half the time it just went right by you. And, you know, again, I think James is more on a positive frequency, so maybe it literally does. And then he says, this stuck, though. It really stinks that he wasn't able to convey this when Cooper was in the room. But then we get Cooper coming into the room and, um, you know, getting the uh, the half-heart necklace from James at this point. And then James is put back into a cell. And this is when Donna comes into the police station or the sheriff's station. Um, and, uh, you know, she gets whistled at by, by somebody off camera. And uh, then we get her... You know, and this is like full after sunglasses, and now she's wearing sunglasses. She's already been smoking. And, um, 
you know, it's like she's presenting this to James and she, she's like all appetite, sexuality, wants, um, you know, those are all Donna's top priority. And, and then she uh, uses this circular logic about smoking. You know, she kisses him all steamily. And, um, you know, this is right after James is completely coming clean and going against what Donna was saying in the diner. And, um, you know, it's like we've, we've got James going away from Laura's story to get out of it. And then we've got Donna going fully into it. They're moving in opposite directions. And I think that James actually recognizes this in Donna. And, you know, he wants to, you know, it's, it, he, he knows how Laura was and he wanted her to get out of that mode. So like now he's like restraining himself against Donna in a similar kind of way, because I think instinctively he recognizes what's happening. Anyway, Donna goes and um, basically, you know, she, she leaves by saying, or is it just not okay for me to want you get out soon, James? So, you know, she's kind of like doing that kind of guilt thing. And then she goes down on his knuckle and, um, Next time we see her, it's at the Hayward Supper Club scene. Um, you know, there's not much uh, for Donna besides, you know, officially taking on the Meals on Wheels route, which she does there. But, um, you know, like j just because, you know, Donna's representing just like Maddie is in this scene. And um, this is kind of like, you know, Laura's scene... Laura's presence has been kind of infiltrating the episode slowly but surely. You know, it's like sort of... Um, by correlation with Audrey, um, a lot more actively with Donna and Maddie. And then here, um, she's invoked by name with Harriet Hayward's poem, It Was Laura. And the poem goes like this one. It was Laura, and I saw her glowing. In the dark woods, I saw her smiling. We were crying, and I saw her laughing. In our sadness, I saw her dancing. It was Laura living in my dreams. It was Laura. The glow was life. Her smile was to say it was all right to cry. The woods was our sadness. The dance was her calling. It was Laura, and she came to kiss me goodbye. So we've got a lot of glowing words in here. You know, it's like there's light. Uh, light is present in this poem. Um, you know, the, the light is life energy, essentially, as far as I can tell. Um, smiling in the dark woods, uh, you know, we've got connecting to the woods where, you know, the, all the all the darkness and, you know, the, the presence is. Um, but, you know, sadness is there. Yet we've got smiling in the dark woods. Um, you know, we got we're crying about her death, but she's laughing. You know, it, and which which kind of makes me feel like the end of Fire Walk With Me, where she just died, but then she's laughing next to Cooper in the Red Room. Um, and, you know, here, her smile's giving permission for people to feel the sadness. You know, she validates the pain, the, the sadness of everyone, especially the ones in this room. And then um, her poem equates our sadness with her dancing. You know, it's like now she's in the red room with music. Um, dance was her calling, calling to death, calling to the red room. You know, the, the association's there. Um, you know, the, the kiss me goodbye. You know, this is what she did when she kissed Cooper in the dream, maybe. Um, that's the only time we've ever actively seen her kiss anybody. 
Um, then we've got uh, Laura living in my dreams. So does that mean behind the scenes that Harriet also has the dreams? You know, is, <laughs> is Harriet the dreamer in this case? You know, is she gifted but not damned? Um, you know, she does become a pediatrician per the final dossier, not that that has anything to do with it. But, you know, she doesn't appear anymore after this, so we can't really tell. Um, but that to me, like, especially in season three, if you're not in the story, that means you're not really fighting light and darkness together. You've kind of made a decision. Um, so, you know, who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe Harriet had a red room dream and then, you know, now she's not really needed because, you know, she, she made her peace with it. Um, you know, I mean, obviously this is not anything that you can 100% prove. I just think it's kind of a nice way to, to, you know, resonate Harriet in this story, even though she's never in this story again. Anyway, reacting to Harriet's poem, we've got Sarah, you know, she's got all this tears of sadness. And yet, it's Leland who gets the hug from Harriet after the poem, even though he needs at least. Uh, um, you know, after the Laura poem, we've got the camera panning. It's, um, it's weird, though, because it's kind of wobbly. It's like almost like walking toward the table in a way, you know, it's like, was, was Laura's presence invoked and like sort of acting like it's there, you know, observing everyone's reactions to her invocation. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's exactly like that, but um, there's a certain kind of emotional resonance that feels right about suggesting that. So, yeah, we got a lot closer to Laura at this point. You know, it's like it, it, it's almost like in. Um, in the, uh, I think it's episode five, the Leslie Linka Gladder episode where um, we um, we got that that conversation at the log lady's cabin where she kind of talked poetically about Laura's last night. And, um, then the, um, the people went or then the, you know, the, the lawman went to the, um, the cabin of Jacques where they get all the physical evidence of that. So, you know, it's like you go from the poetic abstract to a lot more physically, this is what actually happened. Um, this, this rhythm is actually the same exact thing because you get Harriet's poem about it. And yeah, I mean, sure. There's a little bit of Cooper intermission, but, um, you know, after, after that poetic take on Laura, then we go to the hospital and we get Ronette's memory slash nightmare about the actual events of Laura's death. And finally, after an episode where it's been like slowly but surely creeping toward more and more and more Laura, she breaks through and um, we get to see how she went out. So before the hospital scene at the end, um, there was one moment earlier in the episode. It was right after Cooper got his smiling bag answer. Um, that's when we're shown Ronette for the first time. So it's almost like, the the way everything's juxtaposed against each other, it's almost like Cooper got affirmation that um, that his um, that his time with the giant was real, and that he got kind of an answer. So like maybe that opened up the um, the supernatural side of Twin Peaks a little bit more, and that's when we see Rana for the first time. You know, it's like we get we get her name card, uh, <laughs> almost like a play. You know, it's like her. Uh, 
or uh, hospital records. You know, we look at that and then we pan up on the blue blanket. So, you know, she's kind of in that same boat as Donna, where like blue, blue tends to be closer to death as well as closer to the real world. So, you know, it's like the the end of your time in the world is death. So I guess maybe that's how they associate together. Um, there's a white pillow and a blanket. So, um, you know, it's like blue and white is um, is the canvas that Ronette is on top or that, that she is within. You know, there, there's the superimposed image of her on the bridge at that point, um, you know, just to refresh viewers. But, you know, that's like, you know, this is what happened to her. And um, she's unconscious. She's in a coma. So um, it gets mirrored later when Miriam Sullivan is in the hospital after being attacked by Richard Horn. Though in that case, she's in a green and yellow bedding. So like the association is probably more that, you know, it's like you've been attacked by the darkness. Now you're in a coma. Um, I think that's about as close as they get together. Um, though also, I mean, they're also collateral damage to something a lot deeper. Um, and they're witness to a tragedy. So I guess, you know, there is more to it than that. Uh, you know, they're... Um, because they're in a coma and are able to uh, respond after the thing, you know, it's like the tragedy has been observed, it's verified, and possibly even therefore honored in a way. You know, it's like the, the pain that someone has gone through um, is being, um, you know, brought into the world and more understood. And that's that's a good way to be um, as far as, you know, being able to get through um, trauma and pain and darkness. Um, in the, at the end of this first scene, you know, Ronette is rousing a little slightly, like, you know, she, she whispers Laura, she momentarily opens her eyes at the very end of her shot. And after that, we don't see Ronette again until right after the giant, um, you know, speaks to Cooper and sends that gold ball into his throat. So what we get first is a still image of the hospital hallway and yeah, I mean, it just feels really abandoned. And um, there's this like really slow creep forward, like almost to the point where you don't notice it right away. Um, then we see Ronette in her bed. It's her second overall appearance in the episode. You know, there's light shining near her head and um, her arms raise up a little bit at the end, you know, by the wrists. Uh, you know, would she have been tied there? Like, is it is it she's like, sort of like, raising her arms to be where she was during her memory. So like, you know, like she's getting her camera angle right or whatever for what she's going to experience again. You know, that after that we get the, the hallway, um, you know, the it's, it's the same hallway, but it's even faster now, almost like there's somebody, you know, moving, moving quickly through it. And then we get Ronette's next appearance, the third appearance, you know, where her arms are raised up and her eyes snap open at the last second. So Ronette's, Ronette's appeared three times in this episode so far, and she wakes. Then we get, um, you know, then then we actually start seeing what she sees. You know, there, there it's the outside of the train car and it's lit from the inside. Um, does that kind of imply like the the light? from Laura's window in the diary, you know, it's like there, there's always light with her and um, there's a lot of darkness around her. 
and there's one thumping sound. And then we see Ronette, except this time she's fighting. You know, she's uh, 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 her arms are flailing. She's clawing the air. She's um, you know, she's basically attacking in place. Um, and, you know, she's she's scared fighting. And what is she fighting? She's fighting her memory here. Like she's actually physically in her bed. But I think she's actually attacking what she sees in her dream. You know, she's fighting Bob. She's defending Laura. Um, you know, she's she's fighting in the train car, except she's like temporally and geographically removed from it now. But, you know, it's like the 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 trauma cycles repeating, um, you know, the, the traumatic moment repeats too. You know, we get a shot inside the train car now, and it's a far off shot. Um, you know, from a distance, we can actually see Bob right next to Laura in the center of the train car. And uh, Bob is yelling in our direction. Really odd thing I'd never seen before this watch. There's a flash of gold light from the right. And it's possibly outside the train car. And it really rhymes with that gold ball that Cooper just got. So is that gold ball um, a way to voice this? Um, you know, is it is it filtering through Cooper? And like now suddenly, um, you know, it's it's like a dreamer situation. You know, it's like because Cooper has it in his throat, it can be voiced within the show. Um, it not not unheard of. Uh, but yeah, so um, that that gold ball rhymes with what happened with Cooper and the location where that gold ball kind of goes on the wall of the train car. That's almost like on the other side of that would be where Mike and uh, Phil, you know, Mike slash Philip Gerard would be in fire walk with me. So like, it's almost like bringing a presence that can save this from happening, even though Gerard never actually walked in. He never crossed that threshold there. Anyway, we're back in the hospital hallway and we've got Bob you know, he, he's running down the camera at this point in the hospital, it seems like. You know, he's smiling, he's yelling, and then he bites down and we can see his teeth biting down like right on the camera. Um, so in a way, just like Ronette's um, geographically and temporally like uh, disconnected, um, we've got Bob attacking her, not in the train car memory, but in the hospital. So... It kind of makes me wonder, like, is this when um, when she's actually being attacked by Bob slash Leland? And that's when she'll get the nail or the the uh, the letter under her nail, because that does happen when she's in the hospital. Uh, I'm going to keep an eye on this, but like it could be a masking memory that like she's remembering this attack of Laura when, you know, physically she's actually being attacked, kind of like. Maybe Bob doesn't come in through the window and firewalk with me. Maybe Leland was already there, but this is the only way that Laura can understand it happening is by Bob actually accessing through the window. Um, could be like that. So we've got Ronette screaming Laura twice. Um, you know, again, uh, a repeating thing that's very important. Um, the The train car, we've got Laura now in a close-up profile. And this is the first of her gigantic screams. And, you know, she's got the bloody teeth. She's got the angry eyes. And um, she's basically in pain, but she seems defiant, almost like, you know, like she's she's like daring this to happen almost. You know, it's like she doesn't exactly appear scared. She appears like vicious and primal almost, you know, like she, she doesn't come off as scared and wounded. 
she comes off as like being attacked, but she's also in a way attacking, even though she's like looking away from her attacker. And um, I got to say, this aired on television in 1990. And, uh, you know, I was 12 at the time. And um, I don't consciously remember Laura doing this at the time. It's like the only thing I could focus on was Bob. You know, it's like I couldn't even process Laura doing this screaming and like looking this angry. And it's like I, I couldn't do it then. I couldn't in, um, you know, 95 or whatever year it was when I saw it on Bravo. Um, <laughs> it took me until I was 22 rewatching the series before I could finally uh, get the gumption to watch Fire Walk with me uh, on DVD when that came out. And um, that's when I saw this, um, this screaming Laura, um, you know, it's like I had never consciously seen it up until I was 22. It was like 2001 or whatever it was, 2001, 2002. And um, it was shocking to me how I didn't notice that at all. Like it was there the whole time, but I could only process so much. And um, it's like what I was just saying about, you know, maybe this is how the the girls are processing their attacks by Bob is or by by Leland is by doing this masking memory thing and you know i i yeah it's um it, it's not at the same level but it's the same kind of concept what i will say about this though now that um now that i can actually see Laura's response to Bob's attack it's it's this whole new level of uh of just really problematic. I mean, uh, it, it feels now it feels more like a ritual rather than, you know, this is a girl who's being attacked by a monster. It, it almost feels like she's part of it. You know, it's like she, she's a party to her own assault. You know, it's like you, you don't get to assault me, but I get to choose how I react to this. And I, I choose to be defiant. Um, I, I I don't know. Like the, the whole thing's a big mess that we're going to get into as we go. Um, anyway, we see Ronette a third time fighting. Uh, so that's three times now that she's fighting in a very particular way. And um, this is when we see Bob straddling the camera and hitting hard from above. You know, he's got his arms all the way up and then he swings his arms down in front of her onto the camera and he does that once and we've got laura still screaming um and you know she's lit but then it goes dark and then there's a flash of a strobe and it almost the the way the lighting works in this scene it seems like it seems like laura's light is getting disrupted when she gets hit you know is is this um the, the lighting, I think, is kind of a way of showing that her life force is waning. And, you know, it, it's not gone yet. But, um, you know, it's like her life force is basically being personified by this lighting, which is electricity. So, like, the, the electricity is really, it's almost being affected by Bob hitting, too. Uh, now, now we see Ronette again, except she's closer this time. And there's this second wave of fighting. You know, the, the first three times we see Ronette, she's waking up. The second three times we see her, she's fighting. And then this third wave of three Ronette, uh, you know, the, the next three of nine, uh, of 
Well, I mean, we see 10 run at uh, shots total, but um, seven through nine, the, the last wave of three, she's fighting, but it's even closer and it's more intense. Um, you know, we see Bob hammering, uh, hammering Laura again um, two times. So again, you know, one action done twice, it's more, um, more official this way. Um, then we see a third Bob hit and, um, that third hit that we see from Bob is, um, that's when Laura's screaming subsides. So like another wave of three that we see from Bob, I mean, that, that we see and it's Bob hitting Laura and like, this is when Laura's screaming subsides. You know, it's like her, her teeth are like gritted and in pain, but she's not, it's like, she's refusing to cry. It's like, she's not, she's not going to give Bob her pain and her like pleading, anything like that. Um, but also there's no flashing of light. Um, this is Laura dying basically. And, Ronette is still fighting harder after this. Um, but then we get a close-up on Bob's face. There's three flashes of light on him. And then we get a close-up on Laura, her face, and there's absolutely no light. Then we get a close-up on Ronette's face. Or, um, yeah, yeah, we get the close-up on Ronette now. This is her 10th appearance, 10th, the end of a cycle, um, uh, the number of completion, uh, all that stuff. You know, it's like, is, is Lynch doing this intuitively rather than actively to have 10 appearances of Ronette? It's tough to say. But, um, you know, she's screaming Laura at this point, even though Laura has probably just died. Um, and she slowly stops struggling at this point. Now that Ronette is calming down, there's one more close-up of Laura's dead face, and there's three flashes of light on it, almost like a confirmation, like, yes, this is true. This scene we're seeing is real. Then we see the mound of dirt, we see the fire walk with me note in blood, and then there's these four flashes of light. Why are there four flashes right there? I don't know. I mean, Lynch likes the rhythm uh, four might be a number that I'm not as familiar with. I don't know. Um, but you know, we see Laura's face again. There's light that flashes as it pan, as the camera pans across her body. Uh, we see the lingerie, the, 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 the lingerie she's wearing. Um, she's dirty. It's dirty. Uh, it's all bloody. And, um, the pan continues up who Bob who's kneeling next to her. And um, when it gets to his hands and his legs, and that's all we see, um, there's one gold flash right there. And then, you know, it pans up and it gets to his face, which is silent. And there's one light flash there. And then after a little bit, there's a flash of light and gold. And this is the moment when he begins to scream or laugh, whether whether it's angry or um, or triumphant, it's really tough to read that. I mean, it's I, I know Frank Silva told John Thorne um, that like there there was like this sexual uh, feeling to that, like almost like a like it 
it's um it's a really creepy state to be in and um i know i know silva didn't like being in that animalistic state at the time um and you know that he didn't want to go back to that you know it's like he he only wanted to shoot that as many times as he needed to uh which meant you know please let's get let's get out of this um i feel like in this case bob is both in pain and victorious at the same time um you know it's like he got what he wanted he got that satisfaction for his appetite but you know it's only a temporary thing the appetite is still there he is all want and that's all he ever is so like you know it's like he he did what he feels like he need needed to do but you know it's it's over now and like what's next i i don't know and also you know there there's the whole thing where he didn't actually possess laura he just got killing out of him um so yeah he didn't get what he wanted but he got what he wanted um yeah it's it's all complicated there's going to be more to it than that but um yeah, this was the moment that uh, absolutely solidified the uh, <laughs> the fear of Bob. Um, I, I don't think I'd ever seen an assault quite like that in uh, on TV. I certainly hadn't in life, and uh, it leaves it leaves quite an impression on you. And um, yeah, I mean, the the only thing left in the episode was a dedication. Um, you know, th this episode was dedicated to the memory of Kevin Young Jr. That was the son of the actor who played Toad, the diner patron who, uh, you know, it's a, in, in season one, he was there a lot. But um, then, you know, health complications with his son um, kind of took him out of the production side of Twin Peaks for a while. Um, so... <laughs> uh, I I don't know if it was exactly tasteful to... <laughs> to dedicate this particular episode to him but i mean it's uh it's a barn burner of an episode so so why not but um you know that plus gersten playing on the piano like you know it's like none of that can make you completely forget what just happened and um you know even though music is a safe place to go when you need to take a break and look away and like just just like help you know heal yourself um it can only do so much <sighs> that was the episode. We are officially in. <laughs> we are officially in the midst of season two on Blue Rose Task Force podcast, and um, yeah, all, all we got now is the sign off. So, you have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show, and we would love to connect with you on Twitter and Blue. <clears throat> on Twitter at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, on Counter Social, it's a new one, at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore The underscore Peaky on Instagram. You can visit RuminationsRadioNetwork.com for additional great shows such as 25 Yards Later and Ruminations from the Red Room. And find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles and content on many other TV shows at tvobsessive.com.
If you want to be part of our next mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week as we cover Diane, the audio tapes of Special Agent Dale Cooper, the audiobook released between episodes eight and nine of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. It's a mystery.